VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, December the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a shout and in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So it's not uncommon for major sports leagues to really hype up certain games. Last night was a good example of that. It was Connor versus Connor. Of course, the first overall pick, Connor Bedard, playing for the Chicago Blackhawks versus Connor McDavid, but the Edmonton Oilers, obviously the best player in the world, and they think Bedard may indeed achieve that status at some point in his future. So the Connor versus Connors, Edmonton all of a sudden hot, you know, won eight straight games. Bedard, though, up against that type of pressure and hype, scored a goal last night, Chicago's only goal. McDavid with a couple of assists, but boy, the NHL was really thumping that one pretty hard. And how about this? You know, it's one thing when you have one or two siblings in a household that achieve ultimate success you know whether it be in any sport under the sun but in this case we're talking about ski cross on the world cup circuit so a brother and sister hannah and jared schmidt neither one of them had ever won a ski cross race and then lo and behold on the very same day they both win their first now hannah had a bit of an easier road than jared in the women's four-person race four-woman race. So three of them collided at the very first turn. Hannah just had to coast down the rest of the course to win her first gold. And Jared, of course, hearing that Hannah had won, he pulled off the the exact same thing. Brother or sister, first wins on the same day. Pretty cool story. A couple of quick sports notes, sticking with the winter sports. So it was on this date in 2022, Washington Capitol Senator Alex Ovechkin scored a hat-trick and a 7-3 win in Chicago to join Wayne Gretzky and Gordie Howe as the only players in NHL history to score 800. And Ovechkin is super quiet this year. You know, there's all the rage about him catching Gretzky for the most goals scored ever in the regular season. Boy, he's going to have to pick it up a notch. He looks so much older and slower this year than he did last year. And this is an interesting one. We followed along with the Shohei Otani sweepstakes last weekend. And everyone knows the story by now. But it was on this date in uh, 1996 that Roger Clemens, of course, pitching for the Boston Red Sox, was a free agent, and he signed with the Toronto Blue Jays. He went on to win 354 games against 184 losses, I believe, in his major league career. Both seasons that he pitched for Toronto, he won the Cy Young. So he was a real uh, coup for the Jays to get to sign him. But uh, uh, contrarily, on the very same day, December the 13th of 2007, the Mitchell Report looked at the use of uh, steroids in baseball. They released their names of 89 Major League Baseball players that have presumably used anabolic steroids and human growth hormones. Notable players included... Roger Clemens. So he was great when he was at it, and then we found out after the fact that he was probably juiced. Anyway, one of the stories that I always have a hard time wrapping my mind around, well, I suppose I shouldn't because it's pretty fundamental, that it's just so easy to steal a piece of uh, uh, heavy equipment. And we saw exactly that again just a couple of days ago. So they stole a backhoe, they drove down Black Marsh Road, talk about brazen, drive down Black Marsh Road, smash into the liquor store there and the complex on, the, uh, on Black Marsh, and who knows how much they made away with. But, you know, it really should be incumbent, whether it be on the people who build these machines and or the contractors who own these machines, there's a universal key that will unlock the ignition for every single piece of heavy equipment made by that manufacturer. So consequently, pretty easy to steal them. Now, when you beat up a liquor store, that comes at a cost to all of us, right? Because we're the taxpayers, the NLC, we fund and fuel. Now, we can and should be talking about whether or not the NLC is actually on the chopping block, as was recommended by the Green Report. 
But you know, this fellow had his backhoe stolen. Now, you know, the RNC has it. Now, thankfully, he doesn't have any snow clearing contracts that are going unsatisfied today because there's no snow on the ground. But he's got to hire extra security and buy a GPS tracking system. So for the contractors out there, I get it. Additional expenses, the last thing you need. But for folks who make these machines, can we not do better? Of course, the ease of working on a job site where one key will start all the heavy equipment, but it's pretty easy, obviously, because we've seen this repeatedly, people stealing these backhoes and other pieces of equipment and bashing into gas stations and restaurants and liquor stores, stealing ATMs and all the rest. It's uh, not good enough. All right. When we talk about when there is a serious crime in action, a shooter who was active, for whatever the case may be, and the RNC's communication with the general public, remember back when Matthew Fowler was on a shooting rampage in CBS. So it was pretty scary stuff because at that exact moment of time, I had one of my sons working out in that particular area, so it was scary. But the RNC, were, I think, were widely applauded for how quickly they communicated with the general public. It did come with a little bit of dollop of fear, talking about, you know, stay in place, lock your doors, don't go out because there's an active shooter. And that fellow yesterday was sentenced. Matthew Fowler got a seven-year prison sentence, uh, but it's now reduced to five given the amount of time he spent in custody at Her Majesty's. So Justice O'Flaherty went down to say that the crimes were extreme violence, required a long and difficult period of incarceration. But I guess the story here that I'm speaking to is the fact that, you know, there have been instances where people wonder the timeliness and the effectiveness of communications coming from the RNC or the RCMP when there are serious matters at hand, but on that case, it looks like, and I, felt, I feel like they got it right there. What do you think? All right, so NAEP has walked away from conversations and negotiations with the provincial government, and it's all about air ambulance. We know an RFP has been sent out to bring in someone who can operate, manage and operate the integrated road and air ambulance service for the province. We don't know what the ground ambulance is going to look like, but it's all going to be run by the health, uh, NL Health Services. In air ambulances, the issue concerning NAEP is the fact that they represent a bunch of people who may indeed see their, uh, their members laid off. They've got some 70 members that represent ambulance dispatchers, engineers, mechanics, and pilots. Now, the government says that it looks like, and they think, that even the private company that is managing and operating the air ambulance service will keep their employees on staff, but there's no guarantee on that front. What we're still trying to figure out is when the government says that they cannot, or were advised, that they cannot buy a fleet of helicopters and aircraft to provide the air ambulance service, not really sure what that advice is based on, but NAEP has walked away from the table. You know, the concern for me, and what I hear, I'm telling you, almost every single day I get an email or two or ten from paramedics talking about their concerns, and they're all the same. You know, it's the unknown. And when the unknown is front and present, they're looking at opportunities everywhere else in this country. And, you know, we've got rural parts of the province where they're hard-pressed to, hard to staff up the ambulances, Labrador notably. But, you know, for the province, it's one thing to bring in these three different consulting firms to come up with this eventual RFP. But NAEP, their concerns with privatization, and they're not alone, I don't think, because we've seen the imposition of private companies, multinationals and otherwise, that are involved directly in our healthcare system. So it still is a big issue that I think people really have to have a better understanding of how and why we've chosen to go down this path quite clearly. I mean, it's beyond the teledoc and phone med and the compass group and the privatization of air ambulance. 
It's just where does it end and where are the long-term benefits? Same thing goes when we have these public-private partnerships to build infrastructure, whether it be hospitals or long-term care facilities. And remember the story out in Central with the two 60-bed units, one in Grand Falls, Windsor, one in Gander, that was delayed forever and a day with all the deficiencies that were identified upon final inspection. So it used to be a really big headline-gathering issue. You know, how and why are we doing this? Of course, when the government is struggling financially, and I mean our debt is growing, we all see the numbers, there's a short-term relief. Of course there is. And there's nothing wrong with making a profit as a private entrepreneur and a private business because that's why you're in business. But the question is whether or not we're better off when we look 10, 20, 30 years down the road. So NAEP, obviously concerned. We had Jerry Earl, the president of the union, on last week talking about their concerns regarding the privatization of air ambulance. Okay, similarly related. We now know a little bit more about the National Dental Plan. A couple of curious things, though, and I'm not really sure how this is going to work. So for some reason, the group that they're going to tackle first is people over the age of 87. Now, this is all intended to focus in on some 9 million Canadians without private insurance. And quite likely, folks over the age of 87 probably do not have private insurance. I don't know how they uh, landed on that particular number. And then moving off to other seniors and uh, children under the age of 18 and folks with disabilities. But here's where some of the disconnect comes for me. So it's going to roll out. The portal will be open soon. Payments might not be uh, happening until actual coverage until May, but then at the same time, they're saying people can start make, uh, making appointments as soon as they're eligible. So how does it work? So if I make an appointment, I'm 88 years of age, but I might not see the uh, actual coverage kick in until May, so does that mean I have to wait till May? Or I can make an appointment in January, and then I'll get the payment in May? because I'm not really sure people have a firm grasp on exactly how that works, and it's questions I'm fielding, but I don't have the answer. We'll try to get some more answers coming from the Minister's office. That's Minister of Labour and Senior Seamus O'Regan, and of course on the health file as well. And speaking of the health file, it doesn't look like there's going to be any resolution or documentation or legislation coming forward by the end of the year, which was the demand of the NDP of the federal Liberals in relation to their supply and confidence agreement, and this by Universal Pharmacare. So Don Davies, who's the health critic for the NDP, he's working alongside with the health minister, Mark Holland, and their teams. It's not going to be on the table. There's no way at this point, December 13th, we're going to see any type of proposal to make it through Parliament, the Senate, and you, you know all the rest of the procedures. I don't even know where people come down on this one. But if you're an NDP supporter, are you still enjoying or appreciating the fact that the party is in essence propping up the federal liberals if you're a conservative member and or a conservative supporter of course you'd like to see this deadline if it's not met for it to be the end of the supply and confidence agreement lots of fluctuation in the federal polls which is interesting but when we look at universal pharmacare of course it comes with a huge price tag here's some numbers coming from the parliamentary budget office they say the single payer system would cost the public sector which is the federal and provincial governments 11.2 billion dollars more a year starting in 2024-25, increasing to $13.4 billion a year in 2007-28. They also go on to uh, offer this conclusion that it would save money, although maybe modest savings. They say the economy-wide savings about $1.4 billion in 24-25, rising to $2.2 billion in 27-28. Now, 
with the course of the last few years, we have seen the national debt soar. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.3 trillion, which is about double for when the Liberals took power in 2015. So we're also talking about spiking that number to about $20.3 billion in 21 and $46.5 billion this fiscal year. So with this, with the issue regarding debt, and I mean, you look at the uh, amount it takes to service the national debt, it's astounding. It equals just about the total amount of healthcare transfers from the federal government to the provincial government. And given that, even though every time there's been a committee struck in the last 50 years to look at universal pharmacare, it has always come with an economy-wide savings. And that doesn't even factor in the issue regarding people who are unable to satisfy the prescription or taking a half a dose or whatever, and what that means for their symptoms and interaction with the healthcare system. But because the way the federal government, and yes, the pandemic, of course, really exploded uh, borrowing uh, for individuals and the provincial and federal government. But because of that, it looks like Pharmacare is going to be on the shelf for a long time. I don't know if you're in support of or would like to talk about, but let's do it. And in the issue and the concern and the concentration regarding home care, the number of hours you get, the ability to age in place, all the conversations we've been having, this one is going to be obviously a problem for many people. So you have some home care provision in, inside your insurance. But the problem for this one gentleman, I'm not even sure it's the same guy who called the show last week, but anyway, what he's talking about, and he's actually a retired long-term care worker, his name is Ron Oliver, he's 72 years of age, partially blind, has mobility challenges. So he was paying for his home care out of pocket, although he had insurance with Canada Life. So he was submitting his claims, but for months and months and months, he was not being reimbursed. So when the story broke, and there's no coincidence on this front either, the story broke on the CBC, a couple of days later, all the money owed to Mr. Oliver was deposited in his bank account. Canada Life blames it on a staffing shortage. The problem there is, for people who pay pretty hefty premiums, whether it be for coverage for your automobile or your home or home care or other services that are covered by your policy, it's not really my issue or my problem for you as the provider to have a staffing problem. You know, there's so much shrugging of shoulders on this front. For this fella, whether it be the anxiety and the panic attacks and waking up in the middle of the night wondering if he's going to be able to buy some food to put on the table because he's waiting for reimbursement from an insurance company that he pays the big premium to, this is not our problem. So if you're our service provider, even if it might come in the hike of my fee for my cell phone or my insurance premium, when we are all waiting for timely reimbursements, it's not my problem. It's incumbent on you to ensure that the Ron Olivers of the world aren't waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats worried about the reimbursement dollar. And it should not take some coverage in the media for these massive profitable companies to be able to do what they're absolutely in trying to do. Make the payment, provide the service when you told us you could and would. So for Mr. Oliver and others out there like you, if you want to make waves on this program about the shortcomings of some of these big companies that are charging an arm and a leg, we can do exactly that. All right, a couple of quickies before we get to you. Still lots of questions about the wind projects. You know, people will have their environmental concerns, fine, and the business model concerns, and the federal government's 40% tax break, and all the rest of it. But what one issue that we really don't have a firm grasp on, now more details are coming to light, and this is only about World Energy GH2, one of five proposals that may indeed get off the ground. So now it's about the integration or the interaction with the electricity grid. There was a lot of that information backed out of their most recent 4,100-page environmental impact statement, so now we know. 
if they build all the turbines, which adds up to 328, it's the relationship with the grid. So they're going to need power from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro in the summer, but will have huge excess power in the winter because the wind blow more frequently and hard in the wintertime. Okay. The power that they're going to be able to sell back to the grid, or if, I don't even know how this is going to work, is some 400 megawatts in the winter months. About, I mean, that's a huge amount of power. Firm output at Muskrat, you know, they call it 824 megawatts. When it actually arrives at Soldier's Pond, is going to be less than that. But 400 megawatts. And remember, Hatch Consulting, working with Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, talking about the forecasted demand of power, their one recommendation that everyone latched onto was a 150-megawatt diesel generator to be positioned at Holyrood, even though Hydro and their president, uh, CEO, Jennifer Williams, says they haven't landed on that. They're still assessing it. But how do we assess this? So it's not a firm 12-month reliable need and or surplus. So how does Hydro even navigate this? And what does this mean for the provincial government? You know, we have no earthly idea how much they're going to pay for power that they need from Hydro during the summer months. No idea what, it's going to, what they're going to charge us for selling power back to the grid, even if we ever need as much of that power. So how did the, this evaluation work out? And remember, this is just one of the wind projects albeit the most contentious for a variety of reasons. But if there's that amount of surplus in the winter and that amount of need in the summer, how can we ever come up with an adequate plan to accommodate both sides? And what is the fiscal issue here? So before any final approvals are given, whether it be on environmental impact statements or otherwise, the government really needs to fill in some blanks here. You know, whether it be how Hydro is going to address the provision of power, but please, can we get some numbers regarding how much it's going to cost for them to buy it and how much it's going to cost us to buy the power from them in the winter months, and whether or not we even really need it, and whether or not we actually owe them any opportunity for them to sell the power back in the first place. You know, I've heard someone refer to it as some of these projects may indeed be a backdoor to things like interaction with the grid, but... That's fine and dandy to tell us about their summer needs and their winter surplus, but there's a lot of dangling issues there regarding some fill in the blanks, and that would be on the dollars and cents anyway. Good news for folks who uh, use a furnace or stove oil, down today around $0.08. Cents. So if you have a need to top up the tank, probably should order up from some furnace oil today. All right, how are we doing out there, David? All right, there's a bunch of stuff I wanted to get to. A couple of quick ones, and obviously shouldn't be quick because these are major league issues. So the United Nations General Assembly has overwhelmingly voted in favor for demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. So there's 193 members of that body, 153 voted in favor, including Canada. 10 against, 23 abstentions, and 7 not present. So you can talk about the isolation now of Israel and the United States. But it's the very first time that Canada has included language that said ceasefire. So we see what's going on in that part of the world, and it's absolutely horrific. They're talking about, this is a quote from it, grave concern over the catastrophic humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip and the suffering of the Palestinian civ civilian population. So they're calling for an immediate release of the hostages and the uncon immediate and unconditional release of the hostages. I don't know where you come down on any of this, but if you follow along, especially on social media, which is not necessarily the real world, there's some pretty hot takes being offered day in and day out, but the United Nations General Assembly has overwhelmingly voted in favor of this humanitarian ceasefire. In addition, COP28 has now wrapped up, and you know, it's always kind of flimsy and wishy-washy, some of the policies and statements that come out of these uh, uh, massive meetings, international community. 
So they have now included language to transition away from the use of fossil fuels in an orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Not, it's kind of flimsy kind of stuff, but of course in this province, still with a pretty significant reliance on the offshore oil industry, last year the prov- province's fiscal year, around a billion dollars into the coffers, so it's not like it's a non-issue for people in this province, albeit an issue around the country and around the world, and if you want to take on one of those two massive topics that we didn't give enough time to this morning, but we're happy to take your call on it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to bring up a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's see here. Let's go to line number one. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I, uh, I said, how are you? I said, I'm okay. Billy, how you doing? Oh, I missed that part. Sorry. Uh, just, uh, I just caught him now. Uh, did you? Uh, I'm, I'm sure. You, I know you got my emails last week. Did you get my email this morning? No, I haven't seen it. Okay, uh, I got another letter in regards to uh, the uh, the town. Well, you did see the emails I sent you last week, right? I responded to them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and just very quickly, for you know, mentioning email, whenever I miss a day, the amount of emails I return to are absolutely unbelievable. So <laughs> if, you, if anyone has sent me an email that you need me to see today, please resend it because I guarantee there's hundreds there that I could not see this morning while I'm preparing for the show. So what's on your mind, Bill? Fair play, Patty. I get it. Uh, well, no, it's just the, 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 I got a, a letter in the, uh, in the mail yesterday from the municipality. Uh, 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 I'm citing uh, uh, sections under their poorly written uh, code of conduct policy that is not in that doesn't even fit inside the law, and I've I've li- li- formally withdrawn and sent. It, this needs to go to uh, even past municipal affairs. It needs to go in front of the magistrate to be ruled on, and. Uh, it's uh, to the point where it's just becoming slanderous and libelous to, to, to uh, uh, well, to my own personal self. And there's other, there, there's other members of the community that are dealing with the wrath of just don't uh, do it our way or don't, and they're uh, don't ask questions. And like I said, the community with okay. the highest budget per capita in the in the country, Patty. I know, I know, for for the whole province to be listened to, it's it's, it's frustrating, and there's genuinely no need. But this municipality, the council as it is right now, is dysfunctional. And but of course, they, 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 they the the select group keeps trying to say that, that uh, blame on other people. But don't don't ask questions about what they're doing, though. And I've so seen. I, I'm just. I've seen various communities and their code of conduct, which was a requirement brought forward by the Department of Municipal Affairs, but some of them are pretty gray. I mean, there's a hundred ways to interpret some of the things that I've seen inside these codes uh, codes of conduct. So there really should be, and I don't know why there's a need for various communities to have such different codes of conduct. You know, there should be an overarching you know, guidelines regarding conflict mm-hmm. of interest and behaviors and procedures and the rest of it. But I haven't seen your uh, your council's code of conduct. I don't think. If I have, I can't recall it. But there are I'll just... Give you, I'll give you a copy. Sure, you can send me a copy. Now, you talk about having the need to put this in, for, in front of a magistrate. Are you going to do something like that? 
Uh, well, yeah, I, I'm just, they, they keep uh, coming up uh, right now. The, the, was uh, posting an official complaint. Uh, the 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 amendment. Oh yeah, no, a motion pursuant to section 151B of the municipal code kind of that requires you to attend respectful workplace training offered by Dallas Mercer Consultants, a private consulting firm, uh, just like the the other ones that, that they use for uh, the other uh, and uh, who will gladly come out and take a day's uh, uh, an invoice for a day for for whatever and it comes down to who signs the check so i'm just going to push it uh, yes that i i'm actually so fed up with this this uh, council now that i i'm i'm thinking about uh, i'll be done when i'm but i'm taking this right yes i'm not stopping until this goes to in front of the magistrate 100 uh, i mean the, the rcmp the, the, the rcmp were out at the last meeting because they hired a private security company to uh, to keep uh, me specifically out of the building when I did no wrong, and uh, when the, the 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 RCMP came out and they enforced the uh, the, the the vote, uh, uh, contravening the law. He, he challenged he challenged uh, uh, charging me with mischief for what standing on a public. Uh, uh, par- parking lot in front of a building wanting to get into a public meeting. It's it's just ludicrous what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way that some councils operate, I mean, people use the word uh, dysfunctional, and there's been many examples over the years. I won't mention the communities now because lo and behold, I'll get emails saying, well, we've got it all straightened out. The fact of the matter is... I know I know the names. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, the fact of the matter is so many councils really aren't doing or aren't operating the way they're intended to. Now, look, there's lots of well-intentioned people who are volunteering their time, and it's pretty thankless stuff in many communities to put your name for, to be a volunteer councillor in particular. So one thing when you're getting paid quite another when you're volunteering but the transparency with which is lost in many communities and i'm in pretty constant contact with residents of various communities that have very similar worries associated with yours now not as member of councils but members of the general public unable right. to get a real firm understanding of exactly what's going on and who's behind it so billy final thoughts to you before we take another call no, it's simply that, Patty. I'm directly to them because I can't. I'm terrified to even address any of them because somehow they'll they'll I'll end up getting accused of something. But it's like, no, I I withdraw from your code of conduct procedure because it is it contravenes the law in so many ways. Let's just. And, and to all the community members, speak to your local counselor. Tell them, you know what, doesn't that make sense? Bring it in front of a judge. Let's go. I appreciate the time, Billy. Stay in touch. I appreciate it. yours Thank very you. much. Thanks. All right. You're Bye. welcome. Bye-bye. And in the world of municipal politics, you know, there has been amendments made to the legislation, giving municipalities much more autonomy, moving away from poll taxes, removing some of the layers of bureaucracy that were in place. It looks and sounds, feels like a pretty positive step forward for municipalities but in that world of cooperation whether it be with you know bringing someone in to be the additional horsepower because how many times have we heard from communities and or municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador that even something like the arduous task of compiling the data to apply for funding regarding housing and the federal government's housing accelerator fund things like that and when you come up with maybe about municipal plans to deal with issues regarding climate change for instance not every community has either the money and or the expertise 
cities to do a variety of these tasks. So if you're a municipal leader and you see what it means for that kind of cooperation, we've had conversations with mayors on the Great Northern Peninsula, Mainbrook, Conchang, Glee, and I think Radington by arm, about how they have put all of their efforts together as a joint council to try to deal with long-term viability. So inside the world of municipal relations, municipal cooperation, of course, we can't say regionalization because that apparently is a bad word in many people's minds. But if you want to talk municipal politics on any level, we can do exactly that right after this. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Jill, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Uh, this is Jill. Uh, this, I'm, I'm a first-time caller with you. Um, I'm calling. Uh, I've lived in St. John's for 25 years. Uh, I've lived in this apartment building. Uh, first with my parents, and then they both passed away, and I stayed on here. And uh, two weeks ago, I got an eviction notice, and I don't know where I'm going to go. No. Here it is. What's the eviction based on? Because, I mean, there's rules that landlords have to abide by, although they can I, indeed evict I, you. So what's the timeline that you're looking at? Throughout 90 days? Yes, uh, I got a deadline to be out of here by February 29th. And I called up the company that owns the building, and they told me it's a no-fault eviction. They won't tell me. Well, I suppose, you know, for, and I can't speak for the company because I have no earthly idea what company we're even talking about, but it's the possibility that, you know, they'll be able to, between renters, adjust their rental rate, and which means very likely an increase in rent, because if they were going to decrease your rent, you wouldn't be getting evicted. Well, I, uh, they already sent me a letter back in July informing me that my rent was going up, $50 to 995 I went down to the gathering place two weeks ago, and they sent it off to income support. I'm on income support at the moment. And I even got a, a subsidy on this apartment with Newfoundland and Labrador Housing, which changed in October because it's portable now. Before that, if uh, I left here, I wouldn't have my subsidy anymore. So I don't know what the problem is. Um, I don't know. I don't know either. So, I mean, it's really tight times out there. The vacancy rate in St. John's and surrounding area is very low. Yes, we uh, all, we've uh, all heard about the uh, average rent costs. Oh, sorry, go ahead. That's what I'm frightened to death about. I don't know where on earth I'm going. And I'm not getting very much help. Uh, I got in contact with my um, MHA for this area, Siobhan Cody. Well, you don't talk to her. You talk to some assistant. I've left messages there, and he called me back one day last week. He was going to get in contact with me about some issues I had. I can't get hold of him. I've left a number of messages on his voicemail. Uh, um, we have a friend of ours. He went through the similar thing last year with the same um, company, re-rents an apartment. was talking to him yesterday. Uh, well, his MHA is um, Jim Dan. And he said, oh, Jim Dan did all sorts of things for me. And so I talked to his assistant yesterday, and huh, I was more or less told, well, you, you might as well go looking for a new apartment and move out right away. She said, I don't have any good news for you. <laughs> Easier said than done. Yeah. That's how helpful they are in here. I voted for Siobhan Cody. I didn't vote for her assistant to leave messages and not hear anything back. 
I'm sure to hear what's happening to you. Every now and then, a couple of the property management companies that I'm familiar with who listen to the show, when they have units available and they hear these types of calls, they send us off a note. So if that happens, we have your telephone number. If anyone else wants to put it in my ear that you have an opportunity for Jill to potentially be a renter of a property that you own or manage, if they let us know, we'll let you know. Uh, it's a strange business what happened here. Um Two weeks ago, on a Tuesday, I don't know if you remember, we had all that wind and rain in St. John's here. Yep. Poor rain and windy. Um, my boyfriend went downstairs to get her mail. We have a, a porch with a, a small uh, roof over it. He came upstairs. Uh, he said, that place is, is uh, leaking down there in a number of places. So I went down and had a look. Yeah, it was leaking. Well, all electrical was. Uh, the, it was coming down through the uh, main... Um, uh, light fixture in the ceiling uh, near where the security camera is. They have a machine there. You put a card in to do your laundry. And uh, I said, maybe we better phone. Uh, well, I said, maybe you should turn off that light switch for a start. I'll go and phone in and let. Uh, sorry, I can't tell you the name of the place. The uh, company know about it. And uh, uh, I did that. I've done that time here. Uh, my boyfriend and I are about the only people ever phone in about anything that happens in here. And the next day, I receive uh, uh, a letter on the door. My boyfriend went down to get the mail. He came back and said, there was a letter on the door with our names on it. Opened up, and it was an eviction notice. Now, I'm a good tenant here. I've, I've, uh, they've kept their rent on time. Uh, I've, uh, they come and inspect my apartment every year. I don't destroy the apartment. I don't have any issues with my neighbors here. I like it here. That's why I don't want to move. It's nice and quiet. I live near stores. It's very convenient around here. Uh, I live up off uh, Cowan Avenue in the West End. And uh, um, I'm just hurt. Um, I've been a really good tenant here, and, and now I don't even know where I'm going to go here. I'll tell you what, I'll... I'll uh, Jill, pardon me. I'm going to put you on hold, speak with David. I just texted him a number and a name that we want you to call. They might be able to help you navigate a place to live. Okay. So I'll do that. And if you don't have any luck, you get back in touch with us. We'll see what else we can do. All right. Okay, sound good? Yeah, all right. Okay, Jill, you're on hold. We'll speak with David. Uh, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number four. Jocelyn, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. This is not a gambling website. Good morning. <laughs> this is not a gambling website that I'm calling. Can I send out a bouquet to Greg Malone? I would say to all the listeners and New Flanders, get the book that Greg Malone has written called Don't Tell the New Flanders. And today, Breakwater has a wonderful offering of 50% off the cost of their books. And if I could get every Newfoundlander that book to read, my gosh, you'd get educated for sure. Back to 1933. Yeah, it's uh, the story of uh, Confederation with Canada. I gave it... uh, a bit of a read when it first came out. You know, there's all kinds of personal interviews and official documents that Mr. Malone uses to uh, paint the picture uh, regarding all the ins and the outs, the twists and the turns regarding the lead-up to eventual joining Confederation. So, yeah, it's it's out there. And if people are so inclined, it's called Don't Tell the Newfoundlanders. Uh, I believe the subtitle is The True Story of Newfoundland's Confederation with Canada. Oh, my gosh. It's quite an interesting book, for sure. There is a... Um 
the person that has the uh, well, making he's with the granite or something that he's closed down the business, making the tomb the unknown sol- uh, soldier. He, yeah, they took the contract back. Right. Um, there's a book out called The Stone Carvers, and it's based on truth. And it's about the Canadian named Walter Aylward, who designed Vimy Ridge and pro- provided whatever the stone and whatnot for Vi- Vimy Ridge. But I have a question. Remember back in the day, Dr. Bruce Aylward, the uh, Newfoundland doctor with the... Um, World Health Organization. Yes. Yeah. Is he related, I'm wondering, to Walter Aylward? Because Walter in the book says, everybody is going to forget my name. He's the Canadian who designed the Vimy Ridge. Yeah, I don't I, know if there's any relation between the two. I have no idea. Imagine. you got the same last name. Mom says, got to be some relation. you got the same last name. Uh, Patty, I'd like to hear from um, Eugene Nippert about the privatization of the the um, ambulance well of course Eugene's position on that is he'd like to see one station on Fogo Island yes I'd like to hear from him about this privatization of the uh, air ambulance business and also Patty mm-hmm. um, take the tax off our light bills remember uh, Lorraine Michaels says it's a necessity and it shouldn't be taxed, the light bills that the uh, Newfoundlanders have. So, okay. Lorraine, hello to you, and I'd say take the tax off the light bills. Supposedly only during the winter months when our light bills are up. Take the tax off the light bills because the light bills are a necessity. The heat is a necessity for sure. Yeah, also, well, okay. I'd All right, like last to one. say hello to... Chief Simeon Chekapich, that be sana. It's good to hear from him on the radio. And also Elizabeth Panashaway, of course. And I'm stuck. <laughs> I appreciate the call, Jocelyn. So the, I'm sure Mr. Malone is quite pleased that you gave his book another boost because oh that's been God, out for a number yes. of years now. Yes, for sure, for sure. Okay. Thank you, Jocelyn. And then the person who talks about the, the campus, uh, the fellow from... The West Coast somewhere. What's his first name? Mike? Cronies Capitalism? Oh, yeah. Mike Higdon, yeah. Yeah, he should write a book, too, about all what he knows about this canvas group. I'm sure it'll be interesting to read what he knows. I appreciate the call. Thanks, Jocelyn. Yes, thanks for answering and talking to you, for sure. Now, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Yeah, uh, Greg Malone's other book that I did read in full was actually a pretty funny book. It's called uh, You Better Watch Out. It's pretty much a memoir of his uh, youth and uh, going to school over to St. Bonds with a bunch of notable people that you would recognize the names if you gave that book a peek. And, of course, regarding the Confederation, a few details released yesterday about the province's plans to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Confederation. So a bunch of community celebrations and, of course, obviously a commemorative license plate. Notably, there's going to be a scholarship given to 
75 grade 12 students. Uh, when we go down this road, there's also going to be the 75th anniversary of Confederation medals given to residents in each of the 40 voting districts. A quote says, who largely go unnoticed while contributing their time and energy to making Newfoundland and Labrador a better place to live. So regarding those license plates, I think every vehicle that gets registered in 2024 is going to get one of those license plates. You're also going to be able to get one if you have one of those uh, foolish old peeled off number license plates that can be a replacement as well. So some of the details where we now understand what's in the works for the 75th anniversary, which of course joined Canada on the 31st of March of 1949. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking HMP. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thank you for the opportunity to come back on your open line this morning. No problem. Sir, I'd like to talk about uh, the HM Penitentiary again, sir. Okay. We know, sir, the Liberal government has been dangling a carrot for the last two elections about new prisons being built. And we know that the Liberal government are lying. It's going to cost about $750 million to probably $1 billion to build a prison to hold 250 inmates, a federal maximum prison in Newfoundland. Where's the Liberal, gonna, Liberal government going to get that money? The last time I protested in Newfoundland, Chris Tibbs from Grand Falls, Windsor, who was a conservative member of uh, Parliament Newfoundland, he actually come down to Haitian Penitentiary when I was protesting to give me a pat on the back to say that he, he honoured me for standing up for what was right. Same with Chess Crosby, a Conservative government, preser- uh, PC government. He come and see me. Danny Williams was a Conservative leader in Newfoundland. He almost had a deal done him and Jerome Kennedy, and it never went through. I think it's Newfoundland time they voted a, a different government and give the conservative a government a chance and the new legislation about crime rehabilitation and, and the prison reform in Newfoundland we need some politicians to stand up sir we got another debt Seamus Flynn in the Her Majesty's Penitentiary again the prison's outdated sir yes uh, of course it is but I mean this is not necessarily a liberal or a Tory issue because prior to the liberals winning power in 2015 the conservatives also talked about replacing the penitentiary but nothing actually happened so I don't think this is one party or another has the issues and when we talk about rehabilitation and uh, the criminal code what have you of course all of that has to be dealt with at the federal level but the province right. does indeed have the opportunity to replace that facility the oldest part of that penitentiary is built in 1858. We've all yeah. heard the stories and regarding yeah. Seamus Flynn, 35 years yeah. of age, died while in custody. Well, I guess he died en route to the hospital. He had made yeah. a formal complaint about a prison assault prior to his death, just a few weeks prior to it. So there's lots of unknowns, including the fact that there was another death in August of which we don't know anything about. Well, sir, look, I've been in prison a long time, sir, and I know the justice system. I, I'm 35, 40 years. When you're dealing with a prison system that's outdated and it got a British mentality of hand, iron hand, it's it's outdated, sir. It's all outdated. We need a new, fresh mentality. We need a new look at the whole prison system. We need a new look at justice. And we can talk all day on open line. We can go on all day about this and that. Something's got to be done, Patty. And it's tragic that it's nothing's being done. So when is gonna somebody going to do something? Well, one of the headlines, uh, front page above the fall in the weekend telegram said, Prison announcement imminent. We've heard that before. I mean, this has been kicked around. This is not a new conversation. There has not been the political will, and I think it's pretty fundamental why. 
because the vast majority of people simply do not care. You know, where there's a win to be had for the politicians and political parties, it's when you provide a doctor. It's when you build new infrastructure like a health clinic or a hospital or a long-term care facility or hire more teachers. or what. That's where they get the political victories. There isn't one available in building a prison, and that's probably well, how, why. But how, what I can understand is everywhere in, in our country, in Canada, we got the provincial government working with federal government, building all these immigrant immigrant buildings. We're building these new hospitals. Because we got a lot of immigration coming in, so our, our structure is not uh, capable of handling it. But the provincial government are fighting with the federal government, and the Liberal government is giving out the money to build new prisons in Ontario, in B.C. They're building new hospitals in Ontario. They're building new hospitals in Quebec. They're building new in B.C. So Newfoundland is a part of Canadian. We, we join Confederation. So how come our provincial government ain't sitting down with the federal counterparts and put your sleeves up and say, hold on, we got to roll up our sleeves here. Hold on a second, Mike. I'm Newfoundland start looking at, you know. Are you saying that the federal government is building provincial prisons? Yes, sir, all over Canada. There's a new one being built in Ontario. Actually, there's two being built in Ontario. Two actual, two prisons that are being built in Ontario and all by the provincial and federal government coming together to build the legislation and giving the $250 million or the $300 million to build the prison. But Newfoundland, we got all natural resources. We're a part of confederation. Where's our provincial counterpart standing up to the federal government saying, where's our part of the pie? Of course, the prison here is a provincial prison. If it's a federal institution like Up Along in New Brunswick, for instance, that, of course, would be federal vest investment in full. The relationship that the province has with the federal government here regarding uh, corrections is that they pay for the federal inmates. But that's as far as it goes. As far as I understand the relationship between this province and Ottawa, overall expenditures for adult correctional service in the country has exploded. I mean, it was at one point back, say, pre-pandemic, in the neighborhood of about 58 or 60, uh, million dollars over the course of five years for direct federal investment in paying for federal prisoners. That right. number now has at least doubled. So. Yeah, because you, that's because of the pandemic and the rise of everything now and inflation has gone up and society has changed. Yep. But it's it's time that we catch up to the time. It's not only that the inmates are suffering, these guards are they're the, the same thing. They're working in, in on these fit conditions. The inmates are not being properly treated. The guards are not in the proper workplace. And we're going to talk every single day, me and you, for the next 20 years until our inmate kills a prison guard and then Newfoundland will be in an uproar and say, my God, we should have realized this that we should have built a new prison. I appreciate the time, Michael. I think people are well, unfortunately, painfully well aware of just how deplorable the conditions are at Her Majesty's Penitentiary, but yet, you know, for me to read a headline and say an announcement on the new facility is imminent, well, I'll wait, yeah. I'll wait to see, because in the most recent provincial budget, I think there was only something like $7 million put aside to further advance the concept, the engineering, and the plan for a prison when, in fact, I mean, there's been plans kicking around for a number of years, but no one's making a move. Well, they haven't made a move on it yet. Uh, I appreciate the Sorry, Michael. Hope you're before okay. Before I go, sir, I'd like to tell you thank you. Thank you for your listeners. And one day I was in that prison, but now I'm clean and sober, and I got a good life. And I thank Correctional Service of Canada for giving me a second chance. And there's a lot of inmates down there who deserves that second chance. And I just hope somebody on the open line will take a chance and reach out and give them a second chance because there are somebody's son and, uh, and children, okay? Appreciate the time, Michael. Take good care. 
Thank you, Patty. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. So I'll try to find the financial breakdown of uh, federal monies, provincial monies. And, of course, some of it would be spent on correctional officers, some on infrastructure. So I don't know exactly what the breakdown looks like. I suppose, like, one of the good go-to uh, people or offices that I rely on very frequently is the Parliamentary Budget Office. They'll, they'll have a breakdown, and I would imagine the John Howard Society also has a breakdown of federal versus provincial monies inside corrections. And look, again, it's almost the same conversation every single time when someone says, look, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. It's not that they shouldn't do their time because they absolutely should do the time that they're sentenced to. It's whether or not what's happening at Her Majesty's Penitentiary is reasonable. And by all accounts and what I've seen with my own eyes, it's simply not. So, again, it doesn't matter if you want to vote Tory or Liberal or NDP or Independent. The fact of the matter is, in this country, when we talk about public safety, incarceration, rehabilitation, if we're not hitting the sweet spot and we just all we see is recidivism as people repeat offenders, and if all we see is people coming out battered mentally, physically, and they just come out worse than when they went in, like, it doesn't matter who you're going to vote for. That's not good for either of us, is it? It's quite simply not. All right. And when, uh, you know, I didn't make any mention of any of the most recent municipal budgets that have come down, but someone's asked me to speak to the uh, St. John's, the capital city's budget. So the, uh, this municipality, this capital city, the budget for the year is about $333 million, three qu- uh, a quarter, pardon me, a third of a billion dollars to operate the city of St. John's. So the unfortunate reality for us property taxpayers here, it's going to go up about 12%. So that's about an average for about $240 per year. Residential water tax is going up by $5. So when we talk about the residential mill rate, it's going up by 9.64%. Uh, to 9.1 mills. So the mill rate increase plus a 3.4% increase in property assessments means about a 12% increase in our property tax. Inside that world, look, you know, we can talk about the need to replace garbage trucks and snow clearing equipment and what have you, and apparently that's a big part of the increased budget here in the city of St. John's. So let's see if we can break down some of those numbers. So the city spent $13.1 million on garbage collection. That's a 34.3% increase from last year as it replaces aging garbage trucks. The spending on infrastructure will translate to $810,000 in maintenance savings for the trucks. When we talk about road maintenance, an additional $2.1 million for road maintenance, that's a 21.7% increase driven by, of course, all the higher prices, whether it be for concrete or asphalt or what have you. And so we know that municipal budgets, very much unlike federal or provincial, they're mandated by law to be balanced, not allowed to run a deficit. So there's going to be a lot of money spent replacing the aging infrastructure, which can indeed come with the savings. You know, there's some quotes about how frequently some of these pieces of equipment are broke down. Another couple of areas. Metro bus, getting less funding. We have seen a massive increase in the number of people who are riding the Metro bus. Ridership in 2023 saw a 44% increase over 2019. So council is reducing funding to Metro bus by $1.4 million, of course, all directly associated with the increased ridership. This is the one bugaboo that people will always look at when we talk about the city of St. John's capital budget. St. John's Sports and Entertainment gets an extra $577,136 for operations of the Mary Brown Center and the St. John's Convention Center. Overall operating grant of $6.6 million. Now, there was arguments made not so long ago that the city wasn't interested in selling off either or or both. But now I'm pretty sure I heard Ron, Con- Ron Ellsworth, who's the council lead on the budget, saying that they're not opposed to uh, uh, looking at or evaluating any proposal to buy St. John's Sports and Entertainment 
entertainment operations, whether it be at the Mary Brown Center, the Convention Center, one or the other, or both. So, you know, there has been plans put forward. Were they all just in the form of talking points in the media, or was there actually a formal proposal on paper submitted to the city? I can't remember the details there, but for property taxpayers in this city, including yours truly, we're paying more for property taxes this year. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, hopefully you're in the queue. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The soundtrack of your holiday joy, your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. So we just finished off the first hour talking about the budget for the city of St. John's. Join us on line number one is the council lead on finance and housing. That's Ron Ellsworth. And good morning, Councillor Ellsworth. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Tony. Thanks for reaching out this morning. Happy to have you on. So let's start with the concept regarding the $6.6 million operating grant for St. John's Sports and Entertainment. I was walking the halls this morning, and I thought I heard you say that the city is not opposed to evaluating proposal for sale. Is that accurate? You must have walked walk in the wrong halls because that was never said. <clears> that I have no idea where the VLCM got the uh, soundbite from. But the, the reality is, Patty, is that we continue to invest in all our infrastructure. We continue to invest in all our opportunities within the city, be it Paul Reynolds, be it the News Muse Center, be it snow clearing, be it our parks and recreation, be it St. John Sports and Entertainment. Um, that's an easy target. I get the, those who are opposed to the Mary Brown Center and the Convention Center. I get it. It's an easy target, the easy thing to pluck out and talk about. Uh, we talked about the Grand Slam event last week. Up to yesterday at 12:30, we had 2,900 full event passes out there. We put a lot of time and energy over the last two years into, I guess, getting things restructured within St. John Sports and Entertainment, staffing-wise, senior management-wise. We now have Brent Mead in charge, and anybody knows Brent Mead. We're all excited about what next year is going to look like. We have a new board in place, chaired by the business community. Uh, Stephen Den is the chair of the board. We've removed, uh, I guess, the politics from being involved in St. John's Sports Entertainment. And I look forward to where it goes. I look forward to the great work done by the employees at St. John's Sports Entertainment on behalf of our community. I look forward to the positive feedback that comes from those who come here for, for conventions and events. This past year, we had over 50 events between the two facilities outside of hockey and basketball. All the new people coming in, the tourism piece comes in. Um, you know, the hoteliers, you see the uh, hotels, the room nights are down, and all these events go to help build capacity, build economic development and tourism. And you know, we continue to invest strongly in and for uh, economic development and tourism in the city. Is there any consideration of increasing that room tax that does indeed fund and fuel the St. John's Sports and Entertainment operations? Well, we did have that discussion, Patty, and you know, it becomes a point where you're kind of productive, right? So you, you got to be in the marketplace. Um, we are competitive uh, Atlantic-wise and competitive nationally. Um, we've invested, uh, us and Destination St. John's, invested another $400,000 this year to create uh, more tourism, more opportunities to bring more people in. So there's one or two ways to make money with the room tax. One is to increase the room tax, and one way is to increase the rooms. And I think we're all more interested in increasing the number of rooms that are used and utilized, 
because then becomes the spinoffs, right? Then becomes the the restaurants, the shopping, the boat tours, the tours that happens. All these pieces that become spinoff dollars that creates new dollars, not only for St. John's, for for the region, for the province. And you know what's good for St. John's is good for the province, and it becomes a win-win for everybody, right? Well, let's look at snow clearing equipment. So we're talking about snow clearing budget for 24 at $25.5 million. That's over a 25% increase. The comment is that the you know, aging equipment had been down 60% of the time. So what kind of pieces, what kind of numbers are we looking at, whether it be for plows or trucks or sidewalk clearing machines? What are we looking at? Yeah, so you're, you're at $5.2 million increase uh, for 2024, and that gets heavily into a five-year replacement program for capital for the snow clearing equipment. So we've gone out and done a deep dive analysis looking at the equipment we have, looking at the resale value of equipment, looking at purchasing versus leasing equipment, what's the advantage of leasing and then turning back versus buying and having a capital asset. So for those who want to accuse of us of having lack of oversight, this clearly shows we have a deep detailed oversight of where we are. And looking and doing analysis last year uh, through the winter, the amount of equipment down, the downtime, trying to find mechanics to do the work, trying to get parts in, trying to source parts. These are all the issues that we're still trying to recover from from COVID. And decision was made in order to maintain the service levels, in order to give the services that we want to give, this investment needs to happen to maintain the equipment on the road and not in the garage. So... Where did the analysis land? So are we buying or leasing or a combination of both? All the above, Patty, and that's, and that's where the deep dive came into. So in the equipment where it makes sense where we buy and the residual value is not great, so we buy it. Uh, so that's uh, the five-year plans to replace that equipment. On some of these uh, snow blower, snow clearing equipment, leasing is a better option because the cost to lease and turn back is less than the cost to purchase. And if you look at, uh, for example, next year on some of the snow cleaning equipment, we're leasing at a cost of $1.16 million, but we're saving over 810000 in maintenance alone. When it, uh, as it pertains to the official snow clearing season, which has been extended a couple of weeks in April, what does that mean for staffing? So it means that we, well, Patty, for the last number of years, we continue to extend as needed. Uh, but every year we get into have to extend for a week or two. So this creates certainty for us and for staff and for the community that the shoulder edge of the snow clearing season, which we've seen uh, predominantly needing to be addressed. So we're putting it in the budget. We're trying to be clear and transparent about all our expenses. We're trying to be open and honest about all our expenses. And if we're going to have the 18-week uh, staffing snow clearing component, Let's put it in the budget up front, let's own it, and let's show people that we're being clear and concise on what we're doing with the taxpayers' dollars. When it comes to housing here in this city, I don't know what the timeline is for turnaround because the federal minister, Sean Fraser, was underwhelmed, I guess, with the, the city's first or initial application for funding, the number of units that could be built with it. Now you're talking about uh, increasing that number. I think it was 491. That's off the top of my head. I apologize if that's not accurate. But do we understand what the timeline is for turnaround there? So, Barry, to back up a little bit on that, uh, City St. John's was asked in March to put in an application before the application process opened up for everybody else. They had seven or eight communities across the country, what they want to do, a bit of a test on understanding the application and, and, and guess, vetting it out. And um, the minister came back to us and said that, you know, what he was looking for was 
more about density increase, four units, and a bunch of these items, uh, which we don't disagree on. Well, I think we're getting caught up in semantics on um, what he's saying as a right and what we're saying we can practically do. And our staff, uh, Canadian Mortgage Housing Corp staff, and Minister Fraser staff, in conjunction with Mayor Breen, have had a bunch of discussions back and forth. Uh, we have another letter gone off to the minister a couple of weeks ago, and I anticipate that we should get a response fairly quickly from uh, Minister Fraser. I will tell you, Seamus Reagan's office has been very close to this, communicating back and forth, making sure that we all are clear and concise. Um, you know, the, the concern for us at this point is what is the dollar amount you're willing to support? And we're hearing that we, not, we may not be at the $18 million that we were looking for. We may be somewhere down around the $10 million point, uh, point for investment. But, Patty, the reality is any investment is a good investment. Anything we can do to make this happen. From the city's point of view, our role in this process will be streamlining processes, working with the province on the rural, uh, urban rural, uh, rules and regulations for development, the City Act. We are tied up in a bunch of regulatory pieces that force us to go through a six to nine month process for rezoning of properties. We get the changes made legislation wise. We do some proactive work in the city with regards to changing some zoning up front, allowing things to happen up front. And then the, the application process for the developers, for the nonprofits, for the frontline agencies that want to do this work will be cleaner and clearer. And the idea will be to uh, help move some of these things through the system. But we got some bureaucratic red tape that we've got to get rid of first. Anyone who's ever been involved in renovating and or trying to build a home, you know, identify a piece of property, go through the permitting process, engineering, design, construction, it just takes way too long. So when you make reference to what you can practically achieve inside this housing envelope, what does that mean? Is it all about zoning or is it about getting community groups and or skilled tradespeople to actually build the homes? What's the practical reference you made? Well, so from, and it's all of that, Patty, for everybody involved, but from our point of view, for example, if we want to allow three units as a right in an area, we can make that zoning change. We make that zoning change, and Patty David comes in and wants to have a, a third unit to the property. That can happen in four to six weeks rather than six to nine months. But we need the legislative change from the province on the Urban Rural Act. We need the legislative change on the city. Act. And that's not blaming the province. That's, that's not where we are. Um, the reality is th this is moving quickly. This is moving fast. And all players at the table got a target at the end of, of streamlining, getting rid of some processes, making things easier, but also doing the right things in the long term to protect the community, protect the citizens, and offer affordable housing to those in need. Uh, back to snow clearing just for a brief second. So we talk about the aging equipment and 60% downtime and those those matters. But how about how we manage the equipment and how about we, how we manage human resources? Like, for instance, someone sent me a picture this morning of a sidewalk uh, machine, I guess salting, but, I mean, I don't see any snow or any ice. So do we just, for the sake of it, send people out or do we carefully manage just how many hours are work? Because I didn't really see the need for a sidewalk clearing and or uh, salting this morning. So how close does council work with how we manage the equipment and the human resource because that comes with an overall cost. So I'm going to try to be diplomatic and political here, Patty, because what I want to say, what I'm going to say is two different things. Um, the reality is the that picture is training being done by new staff coming in on snow clearing equipment. Okay. So what That was a person out learning how to use equipment, learning how to tow the salt trailer behind them in a process. 
we're easy targets. We have almost 1,200 employees who work on behalf of the citizens of St. John's. We work day in and day out hard on behalf of the taxpayers, work hard to deliver services and programs, be it at Public Works, be it at St. John's Sports Entertainment, be it Paul Reynolds Center. And this is the kind of BS that you see out in the community. Rather than ask the question, assumptions are made, allegations are made, and our staff feel it, Patty. These are individuals who live in our community, work in our community, and provide services in our community. Yet, they get, they get attacked, they get uh, lambasted, and they get false perceptions of what they're doing in our community when they are doing omen service, out when most of us are tucked away in our own bed, and they're out providing programs and services for us, be it our firefighters at frontline services, be it you know, all of this piece. So you understand the frustration of my voice, but anybody got questions or concerns, ask the question. Don't make assumptions. Well, that's all I did is ask the question. And no, no, once again, in an effort... No, not you. The person who sent it in made assumptions. All you're doing is ask the question for clarity. I spoke to this yesterday at council. When we have new staff coming in, doesn't matter if it's snow clearing, if it's using equipment, if it's first aid training, there's a process they got to go through to be ready and prepared to go out and provide programs and services. This case here new employee, learning equipment, learning how to use equipment, and the only place to do that is on the street. Back to your question, the oversight, we track every piece of equipment. We track every snow clearing route. We go out and we clear in front of schools first 300 meters. Then we go back over and open up the route so that we have a clean, clear route throughout the city. It doesn't mean your, your street is clean back to the curb or back to the sidewalk. It means we're trying to open up the city. We're trying to give access through the city. We go in and open up one set of sidewalks on one side. Once they're open up throughout the city, then we go back and open up the other ones. The problem becomes we are one of the snowest cities in Canada. You look, if you look at our snowfall compared to Halifax, we're at like 350 centimeters a year. Halifax is around 170. Yet people continue to comp- want to compare us to Halifax and the snow clearing. Well, we're double. We're double the snow clearing. So when we're partway through our snow clearing route and we get snow again, we've got to go back and start from scratch and go again, right? Fair enough. And, you know, I can only speak for myself, but this is not a matter of attacking the integrity or the competence of a staff member or a manager or a counselor or a mayor, because when we see and read these stories where I'm going to pay more on property tax, we all have to justify why. So that's why people are asking questions. You know, there's a difference in how you craft a message. It's either an attack or it's fundamentally a question. When it comes to the numbers of people working for the city, you know, there's thoughts regarding things like the number of PR staff and the rate of pay afforded to them and, you know, possible redundancies that might be in place. When's the last time we did a careful examination of human resources and whether or not we can identify redundancies, whether or not we can identify savings regarding the number of people that might not be actually needed to prepare the uh, the task or, pardon me, to complete the task that they're given? So the first question is, when did we do the last look at number of employees we need? That's done every day of the week, Patty. The, I was a part of the council that went through a deep dive analysis back in 2016, 2017, and we cut, I'm pretty sure it was 90 positions out of the positions we had. Since then, we've added uh, Paul Reynolds Center. We've added the Kim Mount Terrace Community Center. We've, we're adding the Muse Community Center. We're adding increased snow clearing. Our employee contingent is still about 28 below the 2016-2017 number. So it's analyzed every day. Our senior staff, our deputy city managers and managers, 
have been directed that they need to, I won't say trade off, but they need to come make the argument. Every time they want to hire a new person, they need to justify it, they need to explain it. So, for example, in the 2024 budget, there's 19 new positions. 17, 17 of them are related to Paul Reynolds, uh, sorry, the Mew Center opening and the snow clearing requirement. The other two are needs within the city, one's around occupational health and safety, and the other one is a couple of component pieces that are made up. So to say that uh, the analysis is done, it's done on a regular basis. It's direction we gave staff back in 16 and 17, as direction that's followed today on increasing the number of employees while we've been increasing our footprint, while we've been increasing the services and programs and offerings within the community, we haven't been adding much staff to do it. So our staff, we are learning to do more with less people. We are learning how to do and change processes and do what we're doing out there. Um, you know, And it, it's a part of the front lines. We are a service provider. We are providing services and programs to our community. Um, and that's where we are. And that's, you know, so, you know, it's a, it's a piece we look at because that becomes a long-term commitment, right? That becomes a long-term expense on the bottom line. And, and most people know me, I'm a numbers guy. And, you know, I look after finance for the city and I appreciate the conference of council to ask me to do that for the second term. And we're at this on a regular basis. If nothing comes through that we're not analyzing every dollar spent. I'm saying that, Patty, the employees have also been empowered. The departments have been empowered. The individuals on the front line who are managing spreadsheets for each department, looking at their expenses. Everybody's trying to find ways and, and make more creative ways to invest the taxpayers' dollars on, on service provision. And their efforts are appreciated for sure. Appreciate the time this morning, Councillor. Patty, always Patty, and I appreciate the opportunity to be involved here. And if anybody got any questions on the budget, I'm not here to find. Thanks for this. Stay in touch. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Ron Ellsworth. He's the council lead on finance and housing. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the behavior of the motoring public. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to a councillor with the town of Torbay. That's Trina Appleby. Good morning, Trina. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you. Um, I wanted to call this morning. I've received a phone call this morning from a concerned resident. They were talking about speeding in the community. And uh, this is a conversation that I've had with you in the past where we have talked about, you know, speeding and asking people to slow down and be careful. And uh, I just wanted to reach out again this morning, touch base. And, you know, kids are going to be out of school soon enough with uh, with holidays. We've got ice on the roads. And, you know, soon enough it's going to be tricky some days getting back and forth, kids walking to the bus stops. We really, really need to make sure that people are thinking about safety. And, you know, the, the, the person who called me today, they said, well, you know, what are you doing about it? Uh, you're, you're a municipal councillor. I'm not calling to speak on behalf of the town by any stretch. I'm calling as, you know, Trina Appleby, a member of our council, because I was called in that way. But, you know, as a parent, I have two children here, you know, kids who walk to the bus stops, kids who want to ride their bike with their friends on these streets. And uh, it seemed to have been an issue ever since I can remember here, and especially, you know, working as a member of the, the council. So I just wanted to, you know, uh, do a touch base, reach out again. I know that we've been in conversation with the RNC, but I think it's also important to speak to the RNC, reach out if you see speeding or you experience it in any of your municipalities. 
like especially ours here in Torbay, you know, reach out, let the RNC know so they can understand what the issues are and deploy, you know, members. And actually, the last time I spoke to you about this, Patty, I got an email from a member who was in our community at that time and had advised that they were patrolling for speeding issues. So I just wanted to, you know, bring it up again, make sure that it's fresh in people's minds, ask them to have a conversation with their families over dinner today and, you know, over the holidays, and just make sure that they're very careful when they get behind the wheel and uh, and they're looking for people who are out, you know, trying to get some fresh air. It's dark, that, that sort of thing. Well, I, you know, people might roll their eyes at, you know, mundane conversations about speeding and reckless driving, but the fact of the matter, people are getting hurt and killed. And it is out of control. Your community is a bit of a racetrack anyway, just with the configuration of the roads and how wide they are in areas and what have you. Now, there are obviously some really tricky, tight corners, Torbay and surrounding area, but just here in the city, I just can't wrap my mind around just how reckless people are behind the wheel. Now, there's more cars on the city streets and on the Northeast Avalon than ever before times are tight we're all just racing to the next red light so as much as you might roll your eyes at conversations about the weather and people's motoring behaviors the fact is it is a problem around here it simply is you go down Kemal Road today just trying to get off our parking lot you better have a big wide open space before you try to get out there because people are flying Mm-hmm. And, and you know what, Patty? It's it's taken that conscious. You know, people call me and they say, "Well, you're a member of council. You do something about it." I don't have that ability. You know, the, there is a part, sure, where you know, a, me as a councillor can work with my council, and my council can work with the province, and we can work with our MHA, and you know, we can have conversations, and, and we're exploring all those things, and we have been ever since I've been a member of our council. You know, since I've been learning and studying and watching this, and as a motorist myself for 30 years driving, you know, my uncle said to me when I first got my driver's license, Trina, when you get behind that vehicle and you turn the key in the ignition, you turn it on, that machine is only a machine, and it does what you tell it to do. And I think, you know, if I could leave anything with our, with the listeners today, you're responsible when you turn the key in that ignition, you start that vehicle you tell it what to do to the time you turn it off. It's on us as people and residents in our communities to be responsible when we sit behind the wheel. And we're all busy and we all have, you know, things we're rushing to and trying to do. But safety is paramount. We, it's too late once you've made a mistake. And sure, people can roll their eyes about, oh, this is a conversation. It's Monday. We've had it again. But I wouldn't be calling about this. I wouldn't be receiving a call about this if somebody was an outraged and concerned for the safety of others and themselves in the community. So I'm, I'm, you know, raising this again. I'm asking for people to think about it. I want to make sure that when, you know, the roads are slippery and kids are walking, especially in the morning to the bus stops, that they can get there safely. You know, please, God, the weather stays like it is and we have beautiful clean dry pavement and kids might be able to get out for an hour before it gets dark but this time of year we really need to have that extra vigilance and i just wanted to make sure that you know when the the message came to me today i felt this is important enough to call and ask people you know across your listening audience to please consider this and maybe make a conversation today at home and for all of us to do our part to make sure that we have safer communities and uh, you know much much happier uh, holidays for, for the next little bit to go i appreciate the time trina thanks for this thank you take care you too bye-bye Trina appleby councillor down in the town
of Tar Bay. So I did read a story on our website, VOCM.com, this morning regarding the story, which I don't know why it's not getting more traction, but it's regarding the uh, report from the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, looking at academic process of 15-year-old students in countries right around the world during the pandemic and reference to the downward trend in math, science, and reading scores since 2003. Uh, look, the issue here is Canada's overall math scores have declined by 15 points between 2018 and 2022. According to the definitions used by PISA, a, a drop of 20 points is equivalent to learning out on a full year of learning. So Canada's math score has dropped by the equivalent of three quarters of a year of learning. This province, it's even worse. So when the trend is obviously very, very real, and then even reference to comments coming from uh, the Education Minister, Crystalyn Howell, saying that the education system here in this province is about to be transformed. Look, I'm not a professional educator. I don't know how they exactly go about delivering curriculum and discussions regarding standardized testing and what have you. But the fact is, things have changed rapidly in the last two decades regarding education in the K-12 system. And consequently, don't take it from me, take it from the folks who actually do these evaluations, you know, compared to other countries, it, whether it be in the English-speaking world and or comparisons to some of the high-achieving uh, Asian countries. It's what we're doing is simply not working on behalf of the students. And of course, as we all are painfully aware, the well-educated public is the absolute key to every societal and economic ill that the country currently faces. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Dave's in the queue to talk about the city of St. John's tax hike. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Good idea coming from a listener via private message on Twitter regarding the sidewalk clearing machine that was out there this morning and, of course, with no actual work to be done. And Councillor Ellsworth says that person was training. So much akin to possibly giving a fellow motorist a bit of a break when you see a sign in the back of the window that says that they're a student learner or a new driver. So you see what that sign says you think okay well i'm not going to freak out here and blow my horn and throw around the, the middle finger the, the suggestion from the listener was maybe if it's a training exercise just put a sign in the back of the machine that says training and so people won't be that miffed when they see it out there in the morning you know in conjunction with reading that our taxes are going up and that's exactly what dave wants to talk about on line number one dave you're on the air Good morning, Patty. How you doing? That's Merry kind. Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you as well. How are you? <laughs> hey, buddy. Uh, okay, the tax hike. Uh, anyway, my, my concern with, with this, I'm thinking about the average family, uh, the senior citizens. Obviously, there's rebates involved. I know that. But uh, but anyway, the you know, the city of St. John's, I know they have to maintain their equipment and their snow clearing, their factors and things like that. But uh, we're spending money on buildings and facilities and and uh, rec facilities and, and things like that that we're writing checks that we can't cash, and uh, you know, and obviously that yearly puts a financial burden on the city and it's a maintenance burden and whatever, and the average per, uh, family out here can't afford to be uh, all these the massive tax hikes. It's it's, it's crazy. And, uh, you know, like I say, I think about the seniors and they're out, people are trying to buy groceries, uh, you know, and, and things like that. So where is it all coming from? And uh, I, I just think that 
there's a housing crisis going on here. This kind of stuff going on right now is going to drive people out of their homes. It's going to help drive people out of their homes, and we're trying to correct that. So you're, are you suggesting that some of the infrastructure spends are unnecessary, like new recreational facilities? Because, you know, in capital cities like St. John's, some of those things we absolutely really do need, especially when we talk about our sedentary lifestyle and the rest of it. So are you thinking that some of what's being built is unnecessarily being built? We're, we're building at times that we can afford to build. And you know what? We've got facilities. We've got Boring Park. We've got all kinds of other facilities. When uh, you know, when the when the city can afford to do so, and the taxpayers can afford to do so, great. That's you know. But we could just come out of a pandemic, and I, I'm I'm willing to bet the average family that has a couple of kids that are trying to get childcare, trying to buy groceries. I would say a lot of those people don't visit those facilities, and I do know that for a fact with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, my family. And uh, they don't go to those facilities because you know what? They're they're trying to sc- scrimp and save to be able to go buy groceries for the kids and take care of childcare and maintain their home and buy vehicles and that sort of stuff. So yes, uh, you know what? I, I get it that the rec facilities are necessary, but we also got the outdoors out here too, and uh, we're spending money that we don't have. And uh, now now they're going to put it on uh, on a lot of young families and seniors that just can't afford this kind of stuff. And I mean, increments is one thing, uh, but to turn around and slam a massive tax hike like that, uh, you know, I think it's it's really not something that the public, the average public person can afford right now. Some of the things that are kind of out of their control at City Hall, you know, the price of asphalt and concrete and the fact that the machinery is aging and needs to be replaced, leased or bought or otherwise. So, I mean, some of those are floating targets. When it comes to other pieces of infrastructure, there's also a concern regarding the timing of application and the time between applying for matching funds or contributions from the feds or the province versus when it actually gets built. So, for instance, like the Mew Center, that's been in play for, what, six or seven years? Uh, The Paul Reynolds Center? It was probably, you know, announced five or six years before it was actually the doors were open. So some of those things that have been happening and in the works precede some of the explosion in inflation, explosion in borrowing rates, explosion in the cost of trades and asphalt and concrete and other materials. So it all came to a head at the same time, didn't it? Oh, yeah. No, but Patty, I mean, simple, simple economics. If you don't have the money in your account, you don't spend it, do you? So when you're in the middle of a project, I get it. But sometimes things need to go on pause uh, to or be delayed or whatever, whatever is required. You don't spend money you don't have. It's real simple. And families out there are struggling right now. And go into the dollar stores and go to the food banks and see what's going on. See the people and the demographic of people that are going into these places. And there's a lot of young families here in this city that are trying to afford a mortgage, and they're, you know, and uh, trying to make ends meet, and these are the kind of things that, uh, rather than just blanket it, I mean, it should be looked at as an individual basis, and look at a at a household income, and and that sort of thing, and target the people that can afford to pay the tax hikes. That's all I'm saying. Uh, that's something that wasn't in the plan, and uh, you know, I get it that they have to maintain infrastructure that people need a place to, uh, to recreate. I get that. But we also have the great outdoors out here, too. So yeah. sometimes it, it calls for put a pause to things, stop spending the money, 
put it into places where it's absolutely required and hold off on this stuff till people can afford to do so. And let me bounce this off you because I understand your, your ultimate point here. Let's say yeah. we put a pause on building one thing or another, whatever it is. We can mm-hmm. say a recreational facility. So at the, yeah. that time, we still have a bunch of carry costs. There'll be insurance in place. We'll probably have to be security because it's an unfinished building. So there's all sorts of liabilities mm-hmm. there. And then what's the likelihood of some of these costs coming back to earth, whether it be for asphalt, concrete, other building materials, skilled trades, and their rate of pay. Would, do you think that we would actually save money in the long run? Because I don't see some of these prices come back to earth. You know, when we see inflation numbers have come down to some 3.1%, food inflation still remains quite stubborn. But the cost of everything is really, you know, not only at an all-time high, but it's hard to picture a world where those costs are reduced to the level where we'd actually save money. What do you think? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the issues have stemmed stem from the Liberal government. There's, there's no two ways about it. And, and uh, you know, worldwide uh, economy has changed. Yes, it certainly has. You know, but uh, it's a troubled world we're living in right now, and I get it. And, and whatever. And, and uh, I'm just bouncing back to the fact that, look, if they don't have the money, they, if they just, these people just don't have the money and they can't afford it. And so what do you do? <laughs> you know, and I understand that a building uh, and an estimate, uh, yes, right now uh, it costs so much. But when when COVID hit, the cost of building materials skyrocketed. And I, I've been up in BC. I've seen the lumber yards full of lumber up there, which you're calling it shortages and things things like that. People are making money off this stuff. And uh, you know, and a liberal government uh, that's out there that's not controlling this stuff. And, and the letting grocery stores gouge customers. But this is the spill-off effect of the rest of it. All I'm saying is, is that the average family and these seniors and these people that are struggling, if they don't have the money, they just don't have it, you know, regardless of what's going on. <laughs> I appreciate the call, Dave. Thanks for this. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Yeah, there's, you know, the debate between when you identify the need for one project or another, applications for support of funding come from the province and the feds, and then the engineering and design, and you start to break ground, and then you start to build. There's a long time in between all of those different uh, pol- different components of getting from idea to opening the doors. So save money by pausing some building? I don't know. I don't necessarily think so. I mean, I understand Dave's point. If you don't have the money, you can't spend it. I mean, like the rest of us, we have a threshold and a limit as to what we can do, what we can afford by the time you exhaust your line of credit and you exhaust your credit cards and borrowing from family and friends. Of course, it comes to a breaking point, very much unlike governments. But even though municipal uh, municipal budgets have to, by law, be balanced, of course, that doesn't mean they, in addition to, can't run a deficit, but they absolutely have the ability to hike up our taxes, which we're experiencing here in the city. Okay, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Wayne. You're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? It's good. And Merry Christmas to you and the family and all your listeners out there. The very same to you, Wayne. Thanks. Thank you, Patty. Uh, Patty, I'd like to uh, make a few short comments on uh, what's going on in the Middle East, I guess, which can be characterized as the Israeli attempted destruction of the Palestinian people, I think given the losses there and the incredible amount of bombing and destructions going on, it's inhuman to watch to to impose that on the people. So I think it's fairly well understood now that Israel is losing its support for this action. And uh, yesterday, I think it was, the gentleman called in, was 
talking to your replacement there about his concern for uh, how this all got started and the fact that the Israelis are claiming they were unaware, thought unaware of uh, what was coming, and uh, this gentleman expressed some doubt about that concept, and I as well have some doubt about that concept. Meaning what? <clears throat> Meaning that I don't believe they were unaware, completely unaware. They were told that there was something in the works by Hamas. The border people were watching activity there that they hadn't seen before. I guess they characterized as training for some form of an event. And the government, as it claims, dismissed that as not very likely because they didn't think Hamas was capable of, of launching any kind of a significant uh, invasion. So history has proved that uh, quite wrong, I guess. And the question is whether they really did not know it. And uh, Netanyahu in, is doesn't have a worldwide is not recognized as holding the monopoly on truth, and so he's not trusted by the rest of the world. And the rest of the world seems to be uh, coming to a uh, position of supporting the people of Palestine, not Hamas. Of course not. No one's supporting the terrorists. You know, and even the, the UN and the General Assembly, the overwhelming majority voting in favor of calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. Look, Netanyahu doesn't even have support of his own people. Of course some people support him and his government, but is Israel's biggest, largest newspaper is writing editorials condemning the government condemning the Israeli Defense Forces. So it's happening inside their own country. So the unfortunate reality here is when we have these types of conversations, if you are saying things like ceasefire, then people are saying, well, you're anti-Semitic and Israel doesn't have the right to defend itself. No, that's not what people say. You know, mm. people are just so quickly willing to twist your words into being, you know, pigeonhole. Well, you're an anti-Semite. Why? Why would that be the case? Or you're pro-Hamas. What? I mean, to be unable to see the humanity or lack thereof on both sides of this equation is kind of pathetic. You know, you needn't be all in or all out on any of these types of affairs. Palestinians, look, Hamas has been in power for, what, 17 years or something. And people are saying, well, the Palestinians support Hamas, so consequently, they'll have to live with the, uh, the bombing and the massacre that they're experiencing. The fact is, half of the Palestinian population isn't even old enough to have voted for Hamas, let alone be supported supportive of a terrorist organization. So, I mean, there's it's a lot of complexities when we talk about geopolitics. And I don't pretend to be an expert on it, but it's kind of foolish to say that every Palestinian is in support of Hamas because obviously they're not. Well, Patty, I'm with you on that kind of analysis because right now I think the stats are showing, what, 17,000 Palestinians killed and nobody knows how many are injured. And I would say that nobody knows how many are killed and buried in the rubble. And that versus, what, 1,200 Israelis. Death on either side is not acceptable. Of course. But nor are we sure how accurate some of the information is that we're getting, right? So in addition to calling for a ceasefire, part of the resolution from the UN is demanding the release, orderly and immediate release of the hostages. So they're not just picking sides here. They're talking about what we're seeing and the humanity or the lack thereof and the militarism and the concept of collective punishment. So... There's a conversation to be had here, and you don't have to say that if someone th- says a ceasefire is is required, doesn't make them anti-Semitic. I mean, we're just quick to attach these labels. Eddie, I, I agree with that. I could count on one hand the number of people of the Jewish faith that I, I know. And so how can you be anti-Semitic 
really, when you don't really know the people. What I agree with you. What we are against is the inhuman treatment of the Palestinian people by the Israeli military and directed by their government, I guess, to do so. Yeah. That's what the world is against. And, is, and the opposition to it is growing so rapidly that the people of Israel will eventually suffer the consequences of this through lack of support for the rest of the, from the rest of the world. So it's time to boot Netanyahu out and, and his right-wing uh, cohorts and, and get some sense of humanity in the government over there and deal properly with the damn issue in Palestine. The two-state solution is going to have to be imposed by somebody. Netanyahu doesn't agree with that because I think I suspect, and other people suspect, that his real plan here is to push the Palestinian people to the edge of the water and allow the further expansion of Israel. Well, I mean, they've they've said that their intended purpose is to raise the Gaza Strip, so that's pretty clear. Now, the unfortunate reality is, too, you're talking about dealing with a terrorist organization that is willing and purposefully putting their own civilian population in risk, or at risk, pardon me. They're not in a military uniform. You can't identify them. And they are absolutely operating out of civilian headquarters, civilian facilities and otherwise. So there's obviously we can acknowledge that at the same time. But the fact of the matter is what's happening today is really unconscionable. And so where the world goes on this, it's interesting for the first time ever, Canada's including the word C fire in anything that they're saying and anything they're agreeing to like they did with the UN General Assembly so again it's just really hard to watch but uh, it's also fascinating to me what gets attention I mean there's been a war in Yemen for what four or five years does anyone talk about it not really we've taken our eye off what's happening in Ukraine why because of what happened what's happening in the in the on the Gaza Strip uh, so it's just weird how we don't follow maybe some of the African conflicts or in Yemen as mentioned or what's happening in Libya but the you know just the media what we should or what they want us to focus on and at this point and in this case it's Israel and Hamas yes that is absolutely true Patty I haven't uh, forgotten about Ukraine I fly the flag every day on my property here and uh, try to gather as, as much news I guess as we can and it is very limited right now but anyway I just want to make those points uh, Patty and it seems that the world's going in that direction of supporting the people of Palestine not Hamas neither the the IDF or the uh, Israeli Defense Force nor Netanyahu we're not supporting that what we're supporting is the people of Palestine and finally the world is going to have to pressure the region I guess to to establish a homeland for the Palestinian people and rightfully so so it's time to get on with it. It's time for Netanyahu to put away his guns and probably disappear over the horizon. I think nobody would be sad if that happened. But anyway, that's it. Fair that's enough. I appreciate the time, Wayne. Take care. That's the way it is with me. I'm just sick of what I'm seeing there. Thanks, Patty. All the best. Good business. Take care. You too, Wayne. Bye-bye. Bye now. Oh, boy. And, I mean, the tensions have been high for, you know, not just since the Six-Day War in 1967. It certainly precedes that. Someone just sent me an article from Al Jazeera about how Israeli children are taught about Palestine, Palestinians, especially Palestinian children. I'll give that a read when I get a chance later today. Let's go to line number two. Judy, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. I'm hoping I'm going to have a good reception here. I'm calling from a cell phone and a cabin. Patty, I'm a hunter, um, moved hunter, and uh, yesterday I went into my area, 
I had to pass through area two in order to get through to area three. I hit a moose, my pickup truck, or the moose hit me, whatever. And apparently, I paralyzed the moose. The moose was on the road, couldn't get up, and um, I was there alone. I called my husband and another hunter. They came. They both had license. Um, We called the wildlife. We got a call back from them. And they said there was nobody at the department to the closest station to us. And that he was calling from Roddington. So we asked permission to shoot the moose to get the move of his misery. And he told us he couldn't do it. He said that he would have to leave Roddington, which is a three-hour drive, and come into this area in order to put that moose out of his misery. Now, my concern is that somebody should be having a look at the laws and policies that in place right now. And in a case of an emergency like this, I think that they should put something in place whereby you should not have to watch an animal suffer. So what's the rationale for you being unable to down the animals because they think people would simply abuse it? Yes, and rightfully so, and some people probably would, but I mean, the thing is, I stayed there for 20 minutes watching this animal suffer. I mean, I had a gun, but I wasn't in the right area. I wouldn't take the meat because I had hit the animal with my pickup truck. But the thing is, I mean, we were there about an hour, and I mean, to watch this animal suffer and the cries coming out of this animal, the animal could not get up. They had our name. They had our phone number. We gave them exactly where the moose was down. They had all the information on us. And I mean, to me, an emergency like this, we should have been able to put that animal down. I understand your point, 100%. So where is Area 23? Is this on the Northern Peninsula? Yes, it is. Area 2, thin behind River Ponds. And we were on our way to Area 3. And so what's that, like Harbor Deep? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And unfortunately, I mean, this animal ran out in front of, I mean, I was only going about 30 or 40, but I guess the, I just broke the back of the animal. I mean, was, you could see that the back was broke. The animal couldn't get up. And, I mean, this guy is not his fault. I mean, he has a job to do, and I can understand the policies is in place, and the law, but what I'm saying, somebody should look at this in a case of an emergency like this and say, you know what, we can't get there for three hours, put the animal out of his misery, leave it there, we'll pick it up. Yeah, I wonder how you could navigate that, you know, always understanding that. I know it's sticky. It is really sticky. But you know what? Who wants to stand by and watch an animal? Nobody. I'm just having a conversation. So I wonder what could be done there to make sure people don't abuse it. Like, so allow you to put the animal out of its misery and to tag its ear with something that all no, hunters could no, have? No, I, I don't didn't m- tag it because my tags were for area I was three. just going to finish my thought that the tag would be exactly that, saying that this animal approved by the department was down as a result of a highway vehicle accident or something. Yes. Something that is not your tag so that you can actually no. justify the hunt and the kill to any of the wildlife officers. I'm just thinking out loud, what, what can you do? Yeah, I know. I'm just 
putting it out there. Maybe somebody can have a look at it and put something in place. I don't know. I don't have the solution. But after seeing that animal yesterday suffer the way it suffered, I have a grave concern for it. Point taken. I appreciate the time. Did you get your animal yet? No, no, no. Okay. Thanks, Judy. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye. All right, right, uh, let's take a break for the news. Let me go back. Tons of time for you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Bernadette, you're on the air. Yes, how are you today? I'm grand. How about you? Not too bad, honey. I was in town a couple of weeks ago shopping, and I lost the key belong to my uh, 2018 Buick Encore. I phoned several stores that I was in, but no one found nothing. I was just wondering if someone in around town happened to pick him up and didn't turn him into the store. What stores were you at? I was at uh, Canadian Tire, Costco, uh, Fabulous Gifts in Paradise, and Leon's. And uh, Swiss Chalet. And Swiss Chalet. you yeah. got to stop at Swiss Chalet when you make your run into town, and Costco, obviously. So where'd you come in from? I came in from Provencia. Okay. So if someone picked up a key fob to a 2018 Buick, you said it was non-core, was it? Yes. Okay. So if someone picked it up and you didn't bring it to one of the store's counters and you have it in your house, give us a call. We'll connect you with Bernadette. Or do you want to give your own number out? Yes, give my number out at my... Uh, t- uh, 709-227-4448. Yep. 227-4448. Yeah. Okay. There, was another, there was another key on them. There's the fob. It's not the, a car key. And uh, there was another key on with it. I appreciate this. Hopefully we can get it back to you. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Bernadette. Good luck. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number two. Michael, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you doing? Best kind. How about you? Very fine, thank you. Top shelf, as you would say. That's what I like to hear. Uh, just wondering about something. There was, a, there was a comment made by a minister a couple of days ago. Uh, the Minister of Education, and I think they're using one of the schools. But anyway, the, the, the comment was that there's 150 to 200 families in this province that does not have the means to put food on the table. Now, I, I don't know if she's getting the same advice that the other minister had, that uh, the Minister of Housing that came out and said that they had built... I think it was seven, 700, and in, in fact, I think they built seven or something of that nature. Yeah. Did you hear anything, any, anything of that nature at all? Yes, I did. So the reference to the housing units being built or housing options, they kind of changed the language. It was a bit odd, but the number that Minister Pike was using was 750, and through the jigs and the reels, it was established that there had only been 11 new units added. So there's a long road between 11 and 750. There certainly is, and I would think, now I could be wrong, but there's a lot more than seven, than, than 200 people in this province, a lot more, that can't afford to put food on the table. And uh, I, I, as an example, 
I, I don't know, but I, I would probably estimate that the city of Cornwall probably got a lot more than that. Not only Paradise and Mount Pearl and St. John's and every and everywhere else. And for somebody to come out and say that there's only 200 people, I think there's something not quite right about that. What's the 200 uh, number that you're using? Are you talking about that new food program between the province and the Maple Leaf Center for Food Security? That's the one in, in, in one of the schools. Yeah, so as I understand this, and I just read this this morning, it's a three-year project to try to deal with food insecurity. It's going to be administered through 16 family resource centers across the province, and it's going to start in January. So what's happening is the province is putting forward $300,000 for, uh, per year for the next three years, and that money is being matched by Maple Leaf. About, two, uh, about 200 families will be able to receive about $150 a month to help. My understanding is that these are very specific numbers based on the number of families with children from birth to six so that's the restriction there is that it's not just the total number of families that are food insecure in the province because we're told that it's one in four families are food insecure this is a very specific target regarding uh, families that have children that are just born up to the age of six but I, yeah okay well I, I i agree with that part of it but uh, i don't think that that was uh, that that's the wording she used it was very clear and concise that it were, that there would be uh, there is uh, 150 to 200 families in this province that couldn't afford to put food on the table and in this province that includes labrador so i mean uh, I, I don't know where she's getting those figures i really really don't well, uh, I, maybe she should have added quite clearly the fact that it's only very specifically for families with children under the age ah. of six. Yeah. That, that, that could very well be, but certainly there was no mention whatsoever of that. So, and I think that's, uh, that, that's, that's really, uh, th- there should be some clarification on that anyway. Yeah, th- th- it's a missing important detail. Oh, absolutely. There's no question of that. I mean, I, you know, I, I mentioned to several people and they said, 200 people, 200 families. That's not right. There's, there's 200 in this small community or whatever here, for goodness sake. Right. Well, so hopefully. You can only imagine what that might be. <laughs> well, hopefully that clarity we just offered it will help clear it up for people. Absolutely. Okay, then I thank you very kindly. And you have yourself a great day, my boy. You too, Michael. Thanks for the call. Take, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, so, I mean, of course, it's a good it's a good project, and it will hit that target of about 200 families, about $150 a month, and it comes in the form of a variety of things, including gift cards, store credit, uh, maybe gift cards for not-for-profit food programs, all delivered through those family resource centers, of which there are 16 in the province, and that begins right away in January. And as you hear from folks like Josh Mee, who really has an intimate, deep understanding of what's going on regarding food insecurity in the province, it's a... It's patchwork. It's a good idea, but it doesn't address the long-term systemic issues regarding food insecurity necessarily. So it's a good step in the right direction, but maybe not the leap and the bounds that we need to see taken. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Robert. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. This is Robert Loder calling from Point Remington. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I uh, just had to call in because I saw an article on CBC that said that John Risley and GH2 are looking to sell power back to the Newfoundland grid in the winter. That they are. So uh, does anybody like have a big concern about that? Because from the history that I've been looking up about these wind energy projects, there's a track record of using something called feed-in tariffs. And uh, that's to offset the increased um, construction cost of a new technology. That's the way they justify it. Now, the track record is from across the country and across the world that these feed-in tariffs 
hurt the end consumer and hurt the customer. And it's my understanding that we do not have a power shortage right now, but it's being justified by the future demand of electric vehicles. So again, like these are things that are all decisions that are being made on future technologies and hopes and projections that sometimes are not completely based in reality, in my opinion. Fair enough. I, I mean, a feed-in tariff is absolutely in an effort to promote investment in these types of projects, so you're not wrong there. But even when we talk about Newfoundland Labrador Hydro's assessment of forecasted demand, it's nowhere near what we're talking about from World Energy GH2. Hatch Consulting, doing work for Hydro, said that their recommendation was a 150-megawatt generator, diesel generator, to be stationed at Holyrood. But World Energy is talking about the fact that they'll have a surplus of up to 400 megawatts available in the winter months. And add to that, we're also talking about just world energy, not the entirety of the five proposals that are currently in play, you know, the four that the government approved to move to the next stage, and then pattern energy at the Port of Argentia. So we might be talking about, what, 1,000, 1,000 plus megawatts, more than even designed for output at Muskrat Falls. So this is a major league concern. In addition to that, we have no earthly idea how much these proponents are going to pay for energy from our grid during the summer months. We have no idea what they're going to charge to sell the surplus power back to hydro and whether or not hydro even wants it so there's a lot of variables that we don't have an answer to yeah and just to make a comment on that there are history before of it happening where these companies came in and connected directly to the grid so they're producing 100 percent efficiency directly to the grid and then they're charging up to 50 cents a kilowatt hour to the governments and then the governments in some cases are going back and selling it to the customers at a the market rate, so like 10 or 11 kilowatts, I think a kilowatt hour. So every kilowatt hour that these companies sell to those local governments, the taxpayers and the ratepayers are on the hook for the differences. So this is a danger that needs to be a rate uh, a rose or brought up and people need to be aware of. I agree, 100%. You know, so it's time that we go back to the well with uh, uh, the CEO at Hydro, Jennifer Williams, because the, there's always going to be a concern about the implications with the integration to our electric grid. You know, because we all know what the pending disaster, financially speaking, for us ratepayers is with Muskrat Falls because those charges haven't come fully online at this moment in time. Then you add in, you know, there's not provincial money, cash on the barrel head for these projects yet, even though if they don't work the way they're intended, you know full well they'll come to the province with cap in hand. But as federal taxpayers, there's a 40% subsidy that John Risley has said quite simply that until that's finalized, they can't make their final investment decision. So we are in. We're in as federal taxpayers. Well, uh, the funny thing is, like, we were at a meeting last week at Wednesday in Botwood that uh, EVREC, EVREC, the Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation, held for uh, stakeholder involvement. So uh, there was, I'm not sure exactly the number of people there, but I, I personally, I don't think that the meeting went over the way that they anticipated it to go. The questions that were asked about safety and impacts on human health and locals in the area, it was skirted four times, and it was never fully answered by the chairman, uh, Ravi Sood. What was the specific questions that were being skirted? Uh, the question that was being dismissed was, I had a question about the impacts on bats, and he said that uh, the bats, I uh, had to refer to his environmental team, Strum, and then there was a gentleman that asked, what the impacts of a ammonia leak would mean to local residents. Okay. So that specific question was asked four times because the gentleman asked it, uh, Ravi skirted it, did not answer it. My wife was sitting next to me and she said he didn't answer that. So she asked it again and then he didn't answer her. So she asked again. 
he did not answer my wife the second time. My brother was on my other side of me, and he shouted. He said, are you going to answer the question or not? And he didn't answer it. So then I spoke up because my history working with toxic and combustible gas detectors, I know the hazards of ammonia. So I spoke up and let people know that it's a very toxic substance, and it can kill you, and it's heavier than air. So these are things that the company is saying that they're trying to be involved and get community involvement and approvals, but yet they're not being straightforward or even honest with us. Well, I mean, ammonia leaks, I mean, they could be absolutely deadly. So questions about safety and whether it be lubricants and or ammonia and any other safety concern, because it's not only directly involved the environment, it's directly involved with people's health. So absolutely. Exactly. And another concern that I have, just the last one here today. So you said that the, the Newfoundland residents or the government doesn't have any uh, funds invested into any of these projects, basically. I think that's roughly what you said. Well, here's what we've been told, and I've asked this question directly of the ministers responsible. So any infrastructure required to tie into our grid is... 100% the responsibility of the proponent. All of the monies for decommissioning is all 100% the responsibility of the proponent. So we have been told that loud and clear, and there is no provincial money being afforded to or loaned or invested in these projects, no provincial tax subsidies, what have you. But the two areas that you and I have discussed this morning regarding the price for them to buy and the price for us to pay, are, you know, in the winter months, we don't have no earthly idea. And that's an extremely important component of this. And now I just want to add something else that you just mentioned about the decommissioning. That question, I actually raised that question at the end of the meeting. Yeah. And I said, will there be a future fund or a decommissioning fund set aside to help held in trust but by the government in order to recoup any decommissioning or cleanup costs, assume if the worst case scenario, the company pulls out partway through or the project doesn't get finished? And his short answer was no. They have no intentions because once the turbines go in, they have no intentions of removing them. But yet, at the exact same time, they're also saying that these projects have a lifespan of some 35 to 40 years before they even, A, replace the turbines, or the business model doesn't work, or whatever the case may be. Again, that uh, question has been asked directly of Minister Parsons, that any of those liabilities for decommissioning will, rely, pardon me, will be the responsibility in whole of the proponent. So I, that's the answers that I've been given to very specific questions. That's right, and I've got the opposite answer last Wednesday from their chairman of the Everett board. So I'm I'm curious why there's a misinformation being shared, and if this company is really as professional and knowledgeable as they are, then which I really highly doubt at this point, because it seems to me like there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. The more I look into this, and I don't want to get into too much right now, but let's just say that we're working on uh, exposing more details. I appreciate the time, but I'll, I'll my final comment is. It's kind of irrelevant what the proponent thinks they're willing to or wanting to do. If it's going to be reliant on final approval for liabilities for decommissioning to be covered, then that's that. So, you know, we kind of hold that card. And, and Sorry, they also say that they care about stakeholder involvement and they want to have a social license. And when I, after the meeting, I was talking to uh, one of their executive dean and I told him during the conversation he mentioned social license and I said well you don't have our social license yet and he said well I don't need everybody's so I mean that's the kind of attitude that these people are having towards the the locals and their communities so if you look into the path of rabbit you'll see a company called Buchanan Renewables and just do a little information on that he's a founder of that company and if you look into the human rights complaints and investigation and everything that happened then it'll it'll like 
it'll make you step back and look at it bigger. I, you know what, to be honest, uh, Robert, I'm not entirely sure what social license means because, again, if we're talking about a certain percentage or the majority of the population given the approval, does that constitute social license, so 50% plus one, or is there a bigger number? Because we, we say these things, but I'm not so sure everyone has the same definition of social license in their mind, so that's a floating target, I would suggest. Uh, Robert, good to have you on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, and I'll be calling back in in the new year if we get more information. So Sounds good. I look you. forward to that. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Jim Dempsey with the Wooden Boat Museum. Jim, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. Um, Follow-up from our last conversation. A uh, reminder to your listeners that uh, we'll be conducting our night course in, in January to March where we build a traditional uh, Newfoundland punch. Uh, we've offered this before, but um, uh, in recent years, the pandemic kind of got in our way, so we're getting back on our feet again. Um, as before, it will be offered at the Faculty of Education at Memorial University. Uh, it'll be Tuesdays and Thursday nights from January 9th to March 28th. Um, this year, we've got a, a bit of a, a, a addition to, uh, to this. Um, <clears throat> we are offering a sponsorship uh, to any post-secondary student who's interested in boat building to attend this uh, workshop free of charge. Uh, it's a real opportunity for a young person uh, uh, to uh, come face-to-face with a traditional skill. The uh, sponsorship is being offered by the Pinhorn family uh, in honor of Wallace Pinhorn, who was our one of our founding members and our longtime treasurer. So it's a real honor for, for us to um, offer this uh, sponsorship in his name. And as I say, it's a great opportunity for a, a young person. How much would it normally cost to register for one of these programs? It's a thousand bucks. Wow. So significant support from the Pinhorns. It, it is. Um, you know, uh, the Wooden Boat Museum was a large part of their lives. Um, they're a Winterton family originally. And so, uh, you know, Wallace in many ways was the heart and soul of the organization. And uh, um, it's an honor to, uh, to remember him this way. And just for clarification, for this evening course, is this for all ages or targeted towards children? I can't remember what you just said. Um, the course itself is open to the public. And we get a variety of people, uh, often people who have always said, I've wanted to build a boat, and they certainly get that experience. But in this particular case, uh, the sponsorship is being offered to a post-secondary student. Okay. That's terrific. Uh, I mean, I know people who take it on really enjoy it. What about if I have limited or virtually no woodworking-type skills? What do you say to folks out there saying, I don't want to embarrass myself and go in there and not know the one end of the hammer from another? Um, we don't use hammers as a goal, uh, but... <laughs> you know what you know, I meant. I know exactly what you mean, and my answer is this is a great place to start. We've we've had uh, lots of people with uh, little or no experience. Um, you know, a, a, we've had uh, all ages. We've had fathers and sons. We've had university professors. Um, we've had a number of women who've had uh, limited experience, and uh, everybody's come out better for it it sounds awesome to me and what's capacity how many people can you handle um we're limited in the in the building uh to 20 people in the uh, that's the regulation for the shop uh so somewhere about 12 to 15 is is comfortable 
And if I'm so inclined and want to register, where do they have to go, Jim? Um, they can go to our website, and uh, that's the www.woodenboatmuseum.com. If they go from the main page, they go to the workshop page, and it lists all of our workshops uh, that we're, we offer through the year. And uh, in this case, you'd be looking for the 12-week session. And that's an indication of the 12 weeks between January 9th to March 28th, Tuesday and Thursday evenings. And you mentioned one, Winter and Family, and of course, also the French Rodney is the Marcus French Rodney. That's right. Uh, Marcus French uh, is uh, designed and built this, this boat, and it was uh, ca- cataloged by David Taylor, who was at the time a uh, master's student in folklore at Memorial University. Uh, he went on to uh, uh, write his thesis, which is called um, Wooden Boat Building in Winterton Trinity Bay, which is available through the museum. Um, and uh, after his master's thesis at Munn, he did a uh, <clears throat> PhD in Norway, where he compared Norwegian small boats with Newfoundland small boats. Uh, he's retired now. He worked at the Smithsonian Institute in, in uh, Washington, Washington, and um, you know, he's a good friend of the uh, of the museum. I think it's terrific, Jim. Uh, congratulations on you know securing this Bob Pinhorn family sponsorship. That's going to be a great advantage for someone who wants to take on this twelve week course. Thanks for the time. Have a great Christmas. As always, Patty. Thank you, and a good Christmas to you. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right, bye-bye. It's Jim Dempsey, him and Jerome Canning out of the Wooden Boat Museum. Let's take a break for the newscast. Still plenty of time to talk about whatever's on your mind right after this. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Annette Marie. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. I'm calling this morning to let you know I just got off from the, with the RNC about a new fraud thing that's on the go. Okay, what's happening? Uh, this foreign man, and I could tell by his accent, that uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you what accent, what kind of accent he's got. Sure. Uh, it's an Indian accent by the sound of him. Okay. And uh, am I allowed to tell you what, what name he's using? Sure. James Cooper is the name that he's using. Okay. He told me he was from the, the Lottery, uh, the Lottery Corporation, and, uh, of course, I knew better than that. Now, I don't play the Lottery, but I knew better, because I don't gamble, I knew better than what he was saying, because, like, they're not allowed to call you. If you win, naturally you go yourself. So then he proceeded to tell me that I won $2 million, right? And, I mean, me not being a player, how could I win? So anyhow, with that, he proceeded to, to say to me, um, he said, what uh, grocery store do you shop at? And I said, uh, well, I shop at all of them. And uh, he, he paused for a minute. Then he said to me, he said, can you tell me your name? And I said, no, but I can't do that. And with that, my son, who was listening in the background, said, hang up, mother. He said, he said, uh, it's, it's a fraud. He said, it's a fraud person. He said, I'm calling the cops. And with that, he hung up on me when he heard my son in the background. <laughs> yeah, they, they know when they've been found out. And like yeah. we always tell people, if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably isn't true. And don't give out any personal information regardless. If someone says they're calling from the Atlantic Lotto Corporation, tell you that you won something, you can hang up and call them back. Right, and you yes. then you'll know who you're speaking with. So the scammers are relentless. 
Well, like the police told me, like, I mean, they put me in touch with the fraud unit. Yeah. And they were, the fraud unit were wonderful to me. Like, like both, you know, both people were wonderful to me. They said, if it's any more than $5, he said, it's fraud, he said. He said, you know, the one thing if, for you to win $5 fund anybody, he said, if there's any more than, he said, like a big amount like this, he said, you can be sure, he said, that it's fraud. Because he said, they're not allowed to call you like that, he said. And I said, no, I said, uh, you know, I said, I know that. Well, he said, he said, no, what do you intend on doing when you hang up from me? Well, I said, I'm getting on open line, they let me. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to talk about this and let, let the people know, because apparently this call was coming from Calgary and the area code service for Calgary and all of Alberta. That was the area code. And anyhow, uh, to make a long story short, I mean, the Indian accent now using, uh, say, an English name or a Canadian name like James Cooper was probably a stolen identity. Because, I mean, he was definitely, you could tell by his accent, he was definitely uh, that type of an accent, you know, a foreign accent. Well, I mean, there is absolutely uh, companies that are doing legitimate business that are using call centers outside the country. So the accent wouldn't be a dead giveaway for me. But just don't give anybody any personal information. In addition to the the scam that you experienced this morning, another lady sent me an email this morning saying that there was a scammer called her house and was the number was 1-587-557-6044 saying that she had won $950,000. Why? Because it was some sort of program to uh, help seniors who are paying their phone bills on time. So again, these things aren't real, so just don't fall for it. There was one going around, of course, around tax time, uh, people getting text messages from Canada Revenue. They don't send text messages, so at all times, be very careful. Uh, can you tell me that no, that phone number again that, that you just said? Sure. You said Alberta area codes, which are 403 or 780. This one is 1-587-557-6044. Yeah, you got it, Tutan. That's it. Okay. That's the phone number, and if they tell you James Cooper, don't you believe it. You know, and that's it there, and there's no one, you know, the sad part about, like, I said to the constable this morning, you know, the policeman, I said to him, I said, you know, officer, I said, how many senior citizens, when they hear that about the money, you know, thinking that they're after winning money, how many of them are fooled? He said, there are millions out there that's like it. And he said, you were one of the lucky ones. He said, I said, yes. I said, listen, I'll tell you right now, I said, they didn't realize that they had a smart senior citizen on the phone. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) Well done yourself. You have a nice day. Yeah, my Same to you, Annette Marie. Thanks for the call. All right. Bye-bye Take now. Care. Bye-bye. There we go. And, you know, not everybody reports it because some people, you know, you get scammed and you're embarrassed. But in 2022, the numbers are staggering. You know, just well, let, me, let me set it up here. With the grandparent scam that we see coming from some of the information people might overshare on social media, specifically on Facebook. So you're proud of your grandchildren and you say, I want to congratulate my, my grandson, John, who's in Toronto, just graduated from the University of Toronto, whatever. So they see it, they call you up and they mask their voice, say, Nanny, it's John, I got in a car accident, I need money for, uh, per, for my bail, and then here's my lawyer. And then they put on another voice, which is pretending to be the lawyer, and they're looking for you to send the money. And of course, so Nan or Pop hear that their children or grandchildren are in distress, how quickly does your heart start to beat, and then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you're breaking out your bank card or your visa. These are not real, so just be very careful. And it gets pretty aggressive this time of year. In 20 2022 alone, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre received fraud and cybercrime reports totaling a staggering 
$530 million in victim losses. That's a 40% increase from the $380 million in losses in 2021. And that only captures the people who actually reported the fact that they've been scammed. And you know there's way more out there than are willing to come forward. Uh, let's go to line number one. Shannon, you're on the air. Hi there, Patty. How's it going today? Okay, today. You? I'm not too bad, not too bad. Um, I just came on to talk about some issues that have been happening here in the town that I live in. Okay. We live down here in Seal Cove, Fortune Bay, and um, we've been here for about two years. Everything has been perfect. But there was a couple issues here with a couple members of the community between them and my boyfriend. Now, it's been being dealt with with the court and everything, but that's not exactly the whole point of it. But um, so annually down here, there's a Christmas party and the entire community is, we all pay taxes so that we're able to enjoy these kind of family events. And um, Mm -hmm. so I don't have Wi-Fi where I am, where I live. So I wasn't able to see any of the posts about it there on Facebook until uh, around December 1st. I seen the posts and they were saying, you got to put your name in so that we're able to get you dinner. And I said, well, I'm sorry I'm late. I know that, but is it possible to put two more names in so that me and my family could come down? And I I got no response, so I waited. And the day of the party, I I messaged again and I asked again, and and they gave me a response. They said, unfortunately, no. Uh, It's a little bit too late. We've had to tell other people we can't as well. And I said, that's fine. Uh, I would still like to come down, take my son down to see Santa and have some fun. Um. I didn't get a response to that, but right after I left a message and I just said a suggestion as a community member to maybe leave a note in the people's mail, that way everybody knows. And I got met with some pretty snarky remarks there. And then as soon as I sent that message, they let me know the day of the party that my family were not welcome to come to the party. Why, because they had only a certain number of people they could accommodate, or what's the problem? That's not what they said. What they told me was that they they think my boyfriend was under conditions to stay away from a man who is going to be at that party, which that's not true. It's the other way around. That person gave our family death threats. Sorry. <laughs> But they've threatened our family and our, our in-laws' family as well. So he's under conditions to stay away from our family and another family here. But we were not able to come because of that. So I, I, I feel like there's a bit of discrimination going on, considering the fact that we're quite new here. We're not from here. Who's the little one in the background? That's my son. His name is Bruce. Bruce? Yes. Is that a family name by chance? It is, it is. He's uh, actually, he's named after his great-grandfather, who's like a, a really long-time listener. He, he loves you. <laughs> well, good morning to Bruce. Thank uh, you. So it's unfortunate, and good morning to little Bruce. Uh, it's unfortunate that this is the way it played out. You would think that the person accused and has some sort of restrictions in place because they were uttering death threats would be the person not welcomed at a Christmas party. Exactly. And like this community here, they pride themselves on being like a really close knit Christian community. But to me, it seems like they've forgotten the meaning of Christmas because they've they've banished a a one year old boy because of this issue from from being able to come to the family event. 
I'm sorry to hear it, Shannon. So what else are you going to do to try to bring little Christmas cheer to little Bruce? Um, I'm not exactly sure. We we have a family who's been very kindly enough to like buy us some stuff for Christmas dinner because we weren't able to afford that. So I I don't know. I think we're just going to spend some time with our family and, and have our own little Christmas party. I've been trying to reach out, too, to people in the government because I, I don't think that this is something the town should be able to get away with. Yeah, you could try the Department of Municipal Affairs. I don't know if they're going to be able to or want to do anything about it, but I'm sorry yeah. you've been excluded from something like a Christmas party. How old is Bruce? Yeah. Bruce is a year old now. One year old. So he yeah. won't entirely grasp what's happening over Christmas, but with the lights and the music and the hopefully a couple of fresh little new toys for him to play with, hopefully he has a great oh, yeah. Christmas. And I hope you have one yeah. too, Shannon. Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. You too. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's get a few done before we run out of time. Line number three. Sylvia, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? And what can we do for you this morning? Okay, I'm putting a cry out or a call out. We need someone to help us. We're the volunteers from the Hill 50, 72 days ago. <laughs> uh, we need, we've been given a house full of furniture from someone that had died. The niece had it up that uh, she would give, it, give us all, everything included in that house bed, table and chairs, everything. We rented a van the other day and it cost $125. And now we've realized or we've been told that we cannot get reimbursed for anything that we've spent to help towards the homeless. We've tried to avail of money that's been donated to the organizations, but they keep saying, no, that's not applicable. We don't spend the money that way. But that's okay. We just want to see if we can get someone with a van to try to help us move the rest of the furniture. Okay, so who would you think that would be able to reimburse that expense? Well, the thing is, I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, social services or someone, because our money is depleted. I have no more to, to you know, scrape together. I put a limit every month on what I spend toward helping. And I have none left. My other co-volunteer, the $129 that it cost her for the van, one of those cube vans, small vans, uh, only fit it so much, and then she had to bring the van back. And because she was told that because it wasn't in the name of one of the homeless that were helping, because he doesn't have a driver's license, she put it in her name. So... Okay. Like, I don't and where's the furniture headed? It's, uh, the furniture is in Calgary, and it's headed down to Pleasantville in the apartment. Okay, so this homeless person found an apartment? Yes, they did. Okay. So if anyone is so inclined with a truck or a van who would like to help move the remaining furniture uh, from Calgary to Pleasantville, do you want to give your number out, Sylvia? you want them to call us? What do you want to do? Uh, no, I can give you the number to call. Okay. 709-986-3309. Yep. Okay. 
So folks out there listening, if you have a van or a truck and something you can help move some of that furniture into an apartment in Pleasantville from Kellegrews, please do indeed call 709-986-3309. Good luck, Sylvia. Patty, the sad part of this is that this person got a key, a house, well, key to the unit and uh, had to get a taxi there. Um, okay. Totally empty. And he was given no food voucher of the $100 he should have gotten. And it, like, it, it was so sad. And, like, okay. I called him in housing, and they just, uh, the lady hung up on me, tell you the truth. When she asked me if I had any more complaints, I said, complaints? You know, I was very taken hurt by that. Very hurt. Because it's, it's not complaints. I'm asking questions. And questions should be answered. Well, hopefully you know? we get an answer to the need for a truck or a van. Thanks for this, uh, Sylvia. Good luck. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, before we run out of time, see if we get these two on. Let's go to line number two. Brandon, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. You? Not too bad, sir. Uh, no, I just wanted to call by and put a shout-out to... Uh, Brian O'Keefe, I believe, was his name, uh, the tech guy there for uh, the VOCM. Okay. Well uh, we, haven't had, we haven't had no radio here since last Friday, and uh, so I called in to see what was going on there. And uh, got a call back right away from this uh, Brian Teller, and uh, very, very formal, you know, kept me up to date what was going on. And uh, God love and even made a trip over here from Cornerbrook last night uh, to get our radio on the go. Yeah, he's one of our engineers on the West Coast. Yeah, excellent, excellent color, top shelf, awesome service. I'm glad to hear it. So way to go, Brian. That's the way we should be operating, and I'm glad that was the service you got. Yep, was perfect, sir. And he called me, kept me up to date what was going on that, and uh, lucky enough, wasn't much to it, and he got her back on the air for us. Terrific. Good news. Yep, perfect. So I just want to say thanks to Brian. I'm glad you called to give me his due uh, congratulations and thank yous this morning, and I'm glad the radio is back in action. Yep, it was, it was wonderful, sir. It was the only one we got over here, so... It's good to have you back. I'm glad it is. I appreciate the time and the thank you this morning, Brandon. Thanks. Perfect. Thanks, Patty. Merry Christmas to you and your family, now, buddy. Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. Thank you. Okay, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Here we go. Let's go to line number one. Ivan, you're on the air. Yes, good day, Patty. How are you? Best kind. That's good. I'm just calling uh, from Portygrave uh, Grave today, and I just want to not- uh, I like the 25th annual boat lighting for your listeners to let them know that uh, that uh, the boat lighting is ongoing now until January the 6th, and we have a schedule of events that's available on our Facebook and uh, website. And uh, yeah, we got a few things happening to celebrate the 25th anniversary. Spirit of Newfoundland is in Portagrave on the 29th, and we got a uh, ugly sweater afternoon tea and a kids' movie night and so on coming up, and a live nativity scene on the wharf. So I just want to just want to highlight some of the events to celebrate the uh, 25th uh, boat lighting. Uh, am I speaking with Mr. Lear? Yes, that's correct. Welcome to the show, Ivan. And apparently, you are the nephew of the fellow who started this tradition. Uh, Eric is his name, right? Yes, yes. Uncle Eric started that uh, a number of years ago. He was the first boat, uh, first one to put lights on his boat. Yep. I've seen the pictures. I mean, it's obviously a fantastic tradition, and now it's been a regular occurrence in the community for the past twenty-five years. A couple of additional uh, sights and sounds this year go around. I mean, even the crab pot tree is beautiful. To be honest with you. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. The uh, Irish Society put that up there uh, four years ago now with that, and, and that's like you said, is a great addition to the to the community and to the scene for sure. Have you seen many uh, people coming through? Because during the pandemic, when we're you know we weren't supposed to be partying inside, you know the story of taking well an hour and a half to get from Bay Robertson to Port of Graves. So you seen a lot of people coming through? <laughs> yeah, the, during the pandemic years, it was massive, and uh, like you said, well we we're. We're only we're not even a week into it this year. We're seeing a nice few traffic on the average night, but uh, uh, but usually around the, the holiday season now on weekends is usually when it's the busiest time. I guess people out of work and out of school and stuff. But uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's a very popular. And uh, this year we got a a booklet uh, to celebrate the 25th anniversary. You pick one of one of those up at the booth on the wharf there for uh, five dollars each, and and we got a tap to donate in that there just uh, just to try to get some funds back to uh, community groups like our recreation committee and uh, and the boat lighting for next year and so on and so forth so it's uh is exciting and is great for the community and we hope that uh, that people will uh, enjoy the sites and come and visit between now and the 6th of january well look congratulations to whoever's involved from the rec committee to all the harvesters who light up their boats it's a beautiful site and a wonderful tradition Absolutely, Patty. And I, before I go, I just want to send out a shout out to the Arbor Authority staff and the boat line and the boat line committee and the fish harvesters and their crews and stuff. It's without them, this wouldn't wouldn't be going ahead and what, definitely wouldn't have got 25 years out of it. So hats off to them for showing up year after year after year. And uh, from all fish harvesters, from the boat owners in Portigrave and uh, the residents of Portigrave, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all your listeners and uh, and the full province. The very same to you and yours, Ivan. Thanks for the call. Enjoy the season. Thanks, Patty. You too. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Here we go. I mean, that's wonderful. If you've never been to Port of Grave to see the boat lighting, terrific. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who, uh, who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.